This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it can't be complained about by my friend and yours, John Syracusa. I'm Dan Benjamin. Today is Friday, November 2nd, 2012, episode number 92 of our beloved Hypercritical. We would like to say thanks very much to our three sponsors for making this program possible. Shopify.com, Lynda.com, and Shutterstock.com. We also want to thank so much New Bandwidth Sponsor for the month of November, MindNode, an intuitive mind mapping app for Mac and iOS. Whether you're brainstorming for your next project, organizing your life, planning your vacation, don't matter. MindNode lets you collect, structure, and expand your ideas. Got iCloud sharing built in. Have your mind maps with you wherever you go. Check them out at mindnode.com. Good afternoon. Hello. How are you doing this fine uh, day? How is the weather? How is your power situation? How are things holding up in the Northeast? Uh, everything's fine here. Never, we never even lost power. I noticed that you were, you were sort of grandstanding a little bit uh, by talking about how your your kids were playing through all sorts of video games and like grandstanding well yeah we've got power that kind of thing <laughs> showboating is that a better word i don't think either one of those are appropriate okay yeah no i did lots of trees down in the neighborhood but uh nothing bad happened to my house and we didn't lose power good was that the topic of the uh of build and analyze you talked about uh new york weather things did you not listen I did not listen. I intentionally did not listen. Oh, uh, I, I will go on record and, and say I'm prepared to be surprised, but I think we covered every possible topic you could possibly cover if it has to do with anything that's happened in the last couple of weeks. Well, that's why I didn't listen, because, you know, I, I assume there was going to be lots of overlap and it's much easier for me to talk about them, it, you know, without feeling self-conscious if I hadn't actually heard what other people said. So, mm. Well, Marco's uh, and and my entire goal of the show was to cover every topic that you could possibly bring up. I think we did it. High five. Uh, all right. Well, but I didn't hear it. So. I know. That's all right. So now this is all new to me and you have to, you know, do the little uh, men in black mind wipe thing so that you can <laughs> now come to these topics again fresh because you got to do both shows. Yeah. And I did the frequency news show this morning. So I, this will be my third current events show today. That's right. Well, like each time you feel like you're you're getting closer to the, the truth of the matter right <laughs> that no absolutely i feel like if there's any doubt about getting to the the heart of the matter by the end of this show we'll have definitely done it here yeah let me just get my i didn't think you would actually finish so soon and since i wasn't listening i didn't know when you were going to end let me just get my notes i hate uh, to keep you waiting i've learned my lesson you have not learned your lesson i have learned it you learned nothing <laughs> i learned something but not much has it ever occurred to you dan <laughs> You like that movie? I haven't seen that in a long time. Well, that, it's a I, very I, good Halloween movie. Does it matter to you at all? You're poisoning that the owners it. place their complete confidence and trust in me that I've signed because, a letter like, of agreement, a contract. You're so obsessed with that one little passage and that one scene that now, like when I watch it again, it'll be uh, it'll be a letdown. <laughs> yeah, no, that's he not, does it. That's not how Dan does it. It's much, much more subdued. <laughs> trust me, he does it better. All right. Let's see what we got here. We all said that. Oh, I got to get my chat windows arranged so I can see all the people 
All of the people. Who kept mentioning me during the chat and I was trying to ignore them. Oh no, I resized my window from the top. See? See what happens? You find a stranger in the Alps. Like I did that thing where you try to move the window and you accidentally <laughs> grab you accidentally grab the top edge of it. Yeah. And so, and now my window's the wrong size. Oh. There's no undo for window resizing. I, I have to just burn the computer to the ground now and start all over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. I have a lot of notes. Today. You're on fire today. Very disorganized. Uh, I'll I like see. this this new Syracuse. Same old. All right. Follow up. Let's dive in. Dive in. All right. On the last show, we discussed the Microsoft Surface a bit uh, and as it relates to the iPad Mini, both of which came out around the same time or were announced. One one shipped and one was announced. Uh, and at one point, we are discussing storage sizes and how uh, the Mini comes in 16, but the smallest Surface is 32. And I'd mentioned that someone said something about the OS on the surface taking up like 12 gigabytes. So that 32 gig model really, you only, you only got 20 left after everything's in there. Uh, so Karsten Sills and a couple other people wrote in uh, with more concrete numbers on how much room is taken up. This is pulled from the Anantech review of uh, Windows RT and the surface and all that stuff. Uh, link is in the show notes. And Anand says that between 6.5 and 7.5 gigabytes are taken up with the OS and then another 750 to 850 megabytes for Office, which comes with the thing. Uh, so it's not 12 total taken up. Uh, he said it, it, he had about 25 gigs left on a 32 gig Surface. Not much. Oh, wait, no, no, that, that's actually wrong. It's, it's 25 gigs of storage to start with. So after Windows and Office, we're looking at 17 gigs left okay. for programs and documents. Uh, so anyway, the, the general idea that... Uh, the OS and Office take up a lot of room on the shipping surface is true. And that's probably why, like on a 16, if you had seven or eight dedicated to that, then it's down to like a 10, you know. Anyway, the, the general idea that the Surface software takes up more room than it does on the iPad is still valid. But the numbers from last week were incorrect. And according to non-tech, these are the numbers he actually saw on his devices. Uh, something else from last week discussing, I don't know how we were, I guess we we're talking about new hardware or maybe in the past, about the MacBook Pro screens where they're fusing the glass to the display for the Retina right. models, as opposed to having an LCD panel and then like a small air gap and then just like a piece of glass. So that I, I was saying if you, you know, dropped your keys on your screen or scratched it or something, uh, you haven't actually scratched the screen with the old way. You could just replace the glass on the front and the LCD panel itself is protected by this sacrificial glass and they're not fused together. Uh, well, apparently... <laughs> Even on those old models where it had the piece of glass and then the screen, if you were to do that, like scratch it up or and get a thing replaced, they always replaced it as a single module anyway. Like they replaced the screen and the glass at the same time. Uh, that's that's from Stephen Hackett on uh, on Twitter, and then Thomas Brand on Twitter uh, explained it because I asked why why would they why wouldn't they just replace the glass? And he said it's because the glass is glued to the lid and the two can't be removed without heat, and so they don't do that repair in the Apple stores, you know, in, in the back room with like a heat gun or whatever. It's just like, they just, all right, just give them a whole new thing. So that's why they replace it as a unit. Well, that makes which, sense. I don't know. I mean, I guess they don't want them uh, removing it or maybe it's the type of thing where if you re- use a heat gun to like loosen up the glue and you pull it out, like it's never the same again and it'll never get glued back. Right. So they just replace it as a unit. Uh, and finally on the topic, also from Twitter, uh, Tanner Silva uh, said that he got his screen replaced on his 15 inch retina MacBook pro. And the total cost was $846. Mm. So, not cheap. 
be careful with those screens. On the topic of the iMac, the new iMac, which we discussed last time, we were talking about why why is that chin still there? And why doesn't it just look like, you know, the monitor? The right. chin keeps getting smaller and de-emphasized, but it's still there. And it's got the Apple logo on the front of it, which seems weird for Apple, who's on their iOS devices. I mean, not all about shoving the Apple logo in your face, but here on the iMac, they always do it. And what was your speculation as to why last it, week? Seem like just to differentiate it from being a monitor and just to make it more clear that it's right. an iMac. It's a computer. Right. And the chin has been de-emphasized. A couple of theories about why the chin is there. Some people said there's stuff in the chin. I said there's like there's nothing in the chin. Uh, there is stuff in the chin, you know, like the RAM and, and the speakers and stuff like that. But uh, I mean, that stuff could all fit behind the monitor. Like maybe they couldn't have a five millimeter edge on the bottom if that was the case. But it's not like it's not like there's not room behind that giant monitor for all the pieces of the iMac. Uh, but a couple of other theories from uh, this one from Jack Slash on Twitter and a couple other people had similar feedback is that there's stuff behind the Apple logo uh, on the front of the thing. Uh, he says that the Bluetooth antenna is there because it's got to have somewhere where it can radio signal out. And so if it's trapped inside this metal case, mm. it can't get through the screen, you know, because the screen will be blocking the signals and it can't get back out the back because that's metal. You need some sort of radio transparent region on the case for the signals to come out. Uh, and I think someone else said that they thought the Wi-Fi stuff was in there. So using it as a window for uh, wireless stuff, I think that's happened before on iOS devices. It didn't, wasn't the Apple logo on one of the iPhones uh, used for like, or maybe it was the iPad. Uh, they, they put wireless stuff in behind the Apple logo. Well, I the, didn't, I didn't, I don't recall that, but I bet you're right. And we, well, I, yeah, I don't remember. I know they had like the the 3G model always has the plastic stripe on the ipad and that's like oh the, you know the non-3g one doesn't have that but then it's the question okay on the non-3g one where you don't have the big plastic stripe on the top where does the wi-fi come out of and the answer to that i think was at, at some point in the past if it's not currently true uh the plastic apple logo so there you go so maybe that's one of the reasons they keep that stuff in there it's just kind of like well we got a place for this stuff and again no reason they couldn't just get rid of the chin and make a little stripe of plastic on the bottom edge that you wouldn't see and that would take care of that for them uh, one more from uh, Michael Stark. Uh, we were talking about uh, the thing where the iPad mini is supposed to ignore your thumb when you're just holding it and supposed to know, like, is he trying to use his thumb to use the device or is he just holding it there and happen to go over the edge because the, the border on the left and right side. Is, is there the a term for that, that whole process? What, the process of ignoring it? Yeah, the, the, is there like a term for that phenomenon of you have your thumb on the device and we are going to ignore it? Well, there's a, there's a bunch of events in uh, Coco. This is not from this piece of feedback, from but from other stuff that I didn't have time to pull into the notes with attribution. Uh, that there's a uh, the event system for UI Kit has like a bunch of callback events for like you know thumb is state or not thumb, but like touches are stationary or touches is resting. I'm getting these names wrong, but there's a bunch of events that are supposed to uh, signal that something is happening in a way that doesn't necessarily indicate input. Uh, I don't remember the exact names, but all of them are, not, they're not names like thumb totally didn't mean it. There's no event called, <laughs> like they're, they're not, uh, they're not ascribing a motivation to the touch. They're merely saying, you know, this touch is stationary or this touch has become stationary. And then you can decide what policy you want to do based on that. And I'm sure that's, you know, part of the mechanism they're using, but it's, it's part of the public event system. But I don't know if there's some larger name for, uh, unintentional input, but, uh, you brought up the, uh, the thing on the, the laptop trackpads ignore accidental trackpad input yeah that used to have a checkbox like on and off and 
you know, you'd always want that to be off because if you put it on, it would it would decide it would just start ignoring you and say, oh, it looks like you're probably just typing on the keyboard and your hand brushed up against the trackpad. I'm going to ignore that. And, you, and in reality, you, what you had done is change from typing to quickly move something, move the cursor with your thumb and it would ignore it. And it was incredibly frustrating. Uh, so Michael Stark tweeted to say that uh, Apple has removed the GUI for that setting. I, mean, I remember you were looking for it in the show. Yeah. And, and you find it. Nope. Uh, so there's a tech note uh, that I linked in the, uh, well, it's not a tech note. It's a, I don't know, knowledge base article uh, from Apple's website that I linked in the show notes. Uh, and it says, are you trying to locate the ignore accidental trackpad input trackpad option? Yes, we were trying to locate it. <laughs> so if you're trying to locate it on your MacBook, MacBook Pro or MacBook Air computer with a multi-touch trackpad, uh, that preference is no longer there. And that functionality to ignore accidental inputs is enabled automatically by default for these devices. And I think the reason that it no longer bothers us is because the old trackpads that had that option were not multi-touch. I don't know how many touch they sensed. Maybe they only sensed two or whatever, but they weren't like the current glass trackpads, which do probably do five points, 10 points. I don't even know how many points of multi-touch they do, but there was like a dividing line between the the quote-unquote non-multi-touch trackpads, even though I think they can handle more than one touch, and then the multi-touch ones. Um, and it's much easier to figure out what's intentional from unintentional if you can sense all the sort of things that are touching where, uh, you know, versus a trackpad that can only sense one or two points of touching and it has to decide which one of those is the real one. So if you accidentally brushed up against a non-multi-touch trackpad with like five fingers, the hardware is only going to send like two of those to the device and it's got to figure out what's going on. So it seems that once they went to multi-touch, now they have enough information from all the touches and, and uh, a much more sensitive touch interface to be able to turn that policy on by default so they can better determine what's accidental. So that, I guess, probably bodes well for the uh, the iPad mini's implementation of this if we both of us didn't even notice that this is now on by default on uh, on laptop trackpads in the multi-touch uh, era. Right. Uh, did you get, before we get off that topic, did you get your iPad mini yet? I know you just said it was like on its way through the distribution center, blah, blah, blah. You've been tracking it on FedEx. Right. But. It is on FedEx vehicle for delivery, delivering to our U corporate uh, headquarters UPS store. So it will be here at some point today. It's not been delivered yet. They say by 3 p.m. I believe them. Uh, so I will have it sometime later today, I'm sure. All right. So it's not going to arrive while we're recording. It will not. As no, even if it is delivered, that's not here. So no chance. No chance. All right. Um, First sponsor. Good idea. I mean, why not, right? Shopify.com hosted e-commerce solution allows you to set up and run your own online store in minutes. They say minutes. I say moments. You just pick a template. You add your products. You pick your payment processor. It could be PayPal, Stripe authorized.net, whatever, and you just ship your stuff. It's just a few clicks. It's easy to sell online. There's no software to download, nothing to host, nothing to upgrade, nothing to maintain. They do everything. You can pick from over 100 professionally designed e-commerce templates, or you just create your own, make it look exactly the way you want, make it look exactly like your own website. You get full control over the HTML and the CSS. There's no bandwidth limits. You don't have to worry about scaling they handle redundancy, failover, everything. And they're PCI, level one PCI DSS compliant, totally secure. All you need is something to sell. Special URL, shopify.com slash five by five. First of all, just go there and check out what they have to offer. Look at their examples page. Look at what you can build. A lot of the sites that you're already using to, when you go and you buy stuff, they're Shopify sites. And you have no idea because they look exactly like the site that you were 
you were at. A good example of this is the Book of Parts site. That's all Shopify. Look how they've handled it. Look how they've styled it. Shopify.com slash 5 by 5 You get three months free instead of just their usual 30 days free. Go check them out. Support the show. Thanks very much for to them for making the show possible. All right. Ready. Yeah, before we get off the topic of the... Uh the Apple logo chin thing. Yes, on Twitter. Mike, Mike the goat. Mike the goat. He says, "Do it a, in a goat voice." Yeah, I can't. I can't do a goat voice. Okay. But yeah, yeah. This is this piece of feedback was also sent by a lot of people, but he's good to remind us of that. It's not just Bluetooth and Wi-Fi. Also, the IR thing. We forget that these things have you know IR. Now that they don't come with the remote anymore, I don't think. I think they stopped shipping that remote. Uh, but at one point, they shipped a little cruddy plastic remote that stuck to the side of the iMac with a magnet remember that oh those are that was funny the little the, the little white plastic and it had the little i'm an infrared remote band across the top of it yeah cheap little great. things but anyway the an ir receiver obviously has to be it's line of sight so you can't just put the little uh strip on the back uh, but i still have full confidence that apple could find a place to hide the ir receiver like behind the black border of the screen or something you know like it doesn't I don't think it has to necessarily be an Apple logo. So it's not like they have to keep the Apple logo just for the IR thing. There's plenty of other front-facing things. For example, they have a front-facing camera on these things, and they're pretty darn good at hiding that one. Uh, doesn't have to, you know, IR receivers don't have to be the size of the Apple logo. They can be those little tiny things. All right. Uh, I'm sure you talked about this on Build and Analyze this week. Uh, someone in the chat room just asked about it. But this week, Disney purchased Lucasfilm, and I'm sure people want to hear what I have to say about that. Uh, as it happens, uh, I beat Marco to the punch on this, and I did an hour-long episode of The Incomparable. It was episode 114, entitled When You Wish Upon a Star Wars. <laughs> I will put uh, that into the show notes. It's already there, already of course. There. The little, oh, no. Oh, no. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so people who want to hear what I have to say about the Star Wars stuff, that episode is already sitting in iTunes for you. Just go over to your incomparable feed, which you all subscribe to, right? And pull up When You Wish Upon a Star Wars, and you can hear all about it. Uh, and now I don't have to talk about it in the show because I have lots of other things to discuss. Unless there's any specific thing that you need to know. I don't know if you listened to that episode of The Incomparable, but is there anything specific that you're dying to know about my take on the Lucas stuff? There are lots of things, and uh, I recommend this show. I recommend this episode uh, of the show. I'm not done listening to it yet, but intentionally because I wanted to be somewhat surprised for, uh, for you, uh, your responses and things on this show. The main question I think that folks have, you, we have talked, which, which episode did we discuss George Lucas and what he has done to Star Wars? Let me see if, do you remember the episode number? No, I never remember the episode numbers. In fact, I was trying to find episode numbers for like when we talked about Windows 8 and I had difficulty even finding that. I'm I'm doing a bad job finding Star Wars is, is not a blog post. Uh, that sounds likely, doesn't it? The People it? versus George Lucas. Yeah, that was probably Was the that the one? Okay, so this is episode number 45 of this show. Uh, let's see. Then there was another one. Yeah, that's it. So I'll I'll put that in I'm pretty sure that's it. I'll put that in the show notes. Um is first my first question for you is is this a good thing or a bad thing not uh, because there's a that's a loaded question first of all you have George Lucas stepping back stepping away and other people coming in to do things with Star Wars first of all second of all uh the announcement that there will be new Star Wars movies coming out every 3 or 4 days there'll be a new Star Wars movie made 
Is that a good thing or a bad thing? What are your thoughts on this? Uh, as I said on the incomparable, I think this is a good thing, completely a good thing. Uh, I always assumed that we'd have to wait for George Lucas to die. Right. Before. Well, we all hoped that uh, it wouldn't come to that, but we, we right. yes, be, be, that was that was the assumption that he would have because, to die before anyone would be able to start fixing things. Because he was such a control freak about it when, you know, he had it, and, but he was able, he was able to give it up. Uh, and that's good. And it's good because it frees Star Wars from his, his control. He had such strict control over the, the prequels and they were so terrible. Uh, being free of that control is great because it gives other people more talented people, younger people, hungrier people, a, a crack at the franchise. Uh, so I think, I think it's a good thing. Uh, it gives us a chance to possibly have the uh, unadulterated versions of the movies be released, all sorts of things that, you know, all the dissatisfaction that, that Star Wars fans have had with the franchise, uh, all that potentially uh, is cured by bringing the franchise elsewhere. Uh, so I give, I give it a thumbs up and I'm happy and optimistic about what will happen. Uh, it could very well be that some terrible things come out of that. this terrible television programs, more terrible movies. But the fact that it's out of control of that one person means that, well, so what? So you make some bad ones, give someone else a chance. They can make some good ones. There's lots of things you can do with the Star Wars franchise. And now that things like the movies, which are like, okay, well, you can make, you know, expanded universe novels and video games and stuff like that. But George Lucas is the guy who says, okay, for the movies. Like those were, you know, now, now it's not gated by one guy's whims. Like if George Lucas didn't feel like doing a Star Wars movie for a decade or two, there was no Star Wars movies for a decade or two. That's not going to happen anymore. So I am optimistic, and I think it's a good thing. I'm very optimistic. I think anything that gets this away from George Lucas's personal thoughts and opinions and and feelings is a is a good thing. I think the further away this is from George Lucas, the better. I'm grateful that he had the idea for Star Wars and that he was able to execute uh, the uh, Star Wars Empire Strikes Back, and to some degree, that third one. Uh, so well and good let's get it away from them and let's anything that i i can't believe that they're going to do anything that will be worse than i think uh, what I, I think you can make things worse um, like, as i said at the end of the maybe i'm just more optimistic as i said at the end of the incomparable i i can definitely see movies being worse than the prequels but nothing that they do with the star wars franchise will feel worse than the prequels felt because, you know, it's not, you know, the an absolute quality. Yeah, you can make worse movies than that in lots of ways. Uh, but nothing will feel that bad because we waited so long. And just it was inconceivable that these movies could be anything other than awesome. And they were terrible. And it was just the biggest letdown ever. And now we're all uh, we all bear those emotional scars and have uh, severed our relationship with the franchise in some fashion in order to move on with our lives. And now now we're free to enjoy the fruits of other people's labors in this universe without the uh, expectations and anticipations that accompany the prequels. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, but yeah, listen to the incomparable if you want to hear more, more about that. I would have probably dedicated the whole show to it if we had not had that incomparable episode, but we did. But uh, uh, so do you, you feel people should just go and listen to that if they, if they want, and that get, leaves you room to stretch out this episode. That's right. Cause I've got lots of other things to discuss here. Uh, so this, this next bit is follow up, but kind of also the half topic for this show. And that is more about Apple's fusion drive stuff. We talked about last week, 
uh, mostly just speculation because all we had to go on was vague sort of slides in a presentation and a, a couple of fact items on Apple stuff, but no nitty gritty technical details about the thing. Uh, and last week, my guesses were that this was implemented uh, with core storage. Uh, and I mentioned on the show, like core storage has been around since Lion and you could, as of even Lion, just make two discs and join them together into a single volume. And I mentioned I was trying to do a demo like that for my Lion review, but it wasn't quite working. I was using disc images and it was really buggy and stuff like that. But anyway, right. that capability has been there in the man page for, you know, disk util since 10.7. Uh, as I said, you could do that today, you know, just far as I presumably it's it's less buggy now. Uh, but I didn't understand how that would uh, how, how to square that all with core star with uh, with Fusion Drive, because Fusion Drive was always described in terms of like, oh, and these applications, if you use them a lot, will end up on the SSD. But this stuff, you know, and they talk about applications and files, but core storage works at the block level. It's not at the file level. So I didn't understand. I'm like, well, core storage is just an umbrella term. They could have just implemented something new that uh, shuttles files back and forth and works at the file level. And even though it's called core storage, it's not the same as the, you know, the block-based logical volume manager thing that they use for FileVault 2. You know, we just didn't know because there wasn't enough technical details released. Well, since last week, someone named Patrick Stein, or Jolly Jinx on Twitter, <laughs> uh, put up a series of uh, posts on his Tumblr where he did just what I described last week, which is, all right, let me just take core storage, disk util, core storage, join some two disks together into a single volume. Only he, what he did was he took uh, my two disks that I'm going to join. One is going to be an SSD and one is going to be a spinning disk. So now I'm making my own fusion drive. Now, the underlying assumption for all these posts is that what he's doing here with disk util and core storage is what fusion drive is. Uh, and unless he has some information that I don't, or rather I didn't <laughs> before during this week, he's just assuming they're like, okay, well, core storage is, uh, fusion drives gotta be done with core storage. I mean, again, that was my assumption as well. And basically more or less got that confirmed from Apple, but that doesn't mean anything because like I said, core storage could be an umbrella term and so on and so forth. Uh, and the reason I was so skeptical of this being what fusion drive is, is because like I said, everything they described about Fusion Drive was like, oh, it moves your files from one place to the other, or your applications are someplace else. It never talked about like, you know, blocked base where some, you know, just the disk blocks that you read are on half on one thing and half on the other. Like uh, block base doesn't mean file system blocks, like 4K blocks, and it doesn't mean disk blocks, like, you know, sectors and blocks. It means the units of storage that are managed by Core Storage's Logical Volume Manager. And they... Uh, have, have nothing to do with file boundaries, right? They're just implementing a, a, a block storage device uh, and the file system goes on top of that. But those, the core storage blocks that it's shuffling around have no idea what files they belong to. Like, you know, they could span files and stuff like that. That's a, that they're, they're just presenting a block device. So uh, that didn't seem to square at all with something that moves files and applications around. Uh, and it certainly didn't square with the idea that oh, as of Lion, you could make a volume out of two other things and put stuff on it. But core storage does the thing where it moves stuff from one to the other, like it reshuffles stuff based on your usage. And I'm like, well, surely core storage doesn't do that. Like, why would it be moving stuff back and forth? But the thing is, uh, as of Lion, when I was playing with this, it, there's a couple possibilities. One is that back then all core storage did was, you know, join two physical disks together into a single volume and... Uh, put some, you know, some data on one, some data on the other, but it didn't like move stuff around based on usage. So that's one possibility. The other possibility is that it did move stuff based around, uh, based on your usage. And I just never noticed because who would have think, thought to look for that? Because like a logical volume manager, 
like that wasn't a selling point. It wasn't in the in the man page for disk right. util core right. storage. Like maybe it was moving stuff and we didn't even know, right? Uh, so uh, in this experiment that, that Patrick did, is he you know he did he's got the little command lines up here, but if you do man disk util, you can look at the core storage section. You now disk util cs create, uh, you know a logical volume group, and he makes it out of two disks, an SSD and a spinning disk. Uh, and then he creates a volume on that new, you know, he's now created what looks like a single uh, disk, but is really made up of two physical disks. And he creates a volume on it. And he just says, make a volume, make a journal data rest plus, uh, make it 500 gigs. Uh, and it says, okay, fine. Now you've got a volume. Uh, and underneath it are two physical things. Now, the next things he did was he's trying to determine, okay, is this what fusion disk is? So he's using DD and uh, observation of data transfer speeds to say, okay, I'm going to write enough data where I know this couldn't possibly all fit on the SSD. So he writes more, you know, more than enough data, and then he says, now it should be spilling over into the hard drive. And he does a series of experiments with reads and writes of files. And if he gets like, you know, 200 megabytes a second of reads, he's like, oh, that's coming from the SSD. But if he gets a lower read rate, he's like, oh, that's coming from the hard drive because they really are vastly different rates. And he has tried to experimentally prove to himself by eliminating things like disk caching and stuff like that by unmounting the drive to clear the disk cache that something you know he's determined okay these files are on the ssd and these files are on on the spinning disk and then he would see after he stopped doing his activity the disk activity would still be going on behind the scenes because like core storage and and his estimation was moving stuff and then he would do a subsequent test and say oh now that stuff that i was accessing that was slow before you know something behind the scenes has put that onto the SSD physical volume. And now when I read from those exact same things, it's fast. Uh, so he's sort of experimentally determining that plain old core storage, that you just make a logical volume out of two physical volumes, it's moving stuff around based on your uh, activity. Uh, so that that was an, an important point to saying that this is what, uh, this is what Fusion Drive is. Uh, the next bit was like the question of, okay, well, every, you know, is it block-based or file-based? Because again, all the descriptions, you know, the, the marketing descriptions are like all about files and applications. But core storage, you know, logical volume management is working with, you know, blocks that, that don't have, that aren't the same thing. They don't respect file, they're independent of file boundaries, right? Because you're, you're putting a file system on top of this block storage, this virtual block storage device. Right. Uh, so then he was trying to say, okay, I won't read or write entire files. I'll read and write just like the first megabyte of a big file. And he saw that like just reading and writing that first megabyte would cause just that first megabyte to go onto the SSD. Like, you know, the core storage would move them over there. So their support for the idea that this arrangement of volumes and core storage moves data and doesn't move entire files, it just moves blocks, which makes perfect sense in terms of the way core storage works. Uh, and the final thing they tried was like, okay, can I make this logical volume group uh, out of two, uh, logical volume out of two physical volumes and formatted as something other than HFS plus. Uh, so he uh, formatted it as ZFS. Like he's got this logical volume, looks like just an uninitialized hard disk. It's really made up of two hard disks behind the scenes. And he, you know, did ZPool create, blah, blah, blah. And he's got ZFS on top of it, uh, which again, makes sense if it has nothing to do with files. What, it shouldn't care what file system on top of it. It's just, it's just working with blocks. And again, he did his tests and saw that after he stopped messing with the file system, IO activity continued. He said it always kept going for like 10 minutes where it would copy stuff. And he didn't know if 10 minutes was like a fixed limit. I think it's just because that's how long it took to move the amount of data he had uh, fiddled with. Uh, and then he did a read after that. And like all of a sudden the data he had been reading before is now coming back much faster because it's been, it's been moved to the SSD. Uh, so he's using this as evidence that core storage is, you know, works at the block level, just like full disk encryption. Uh, 
and it has nothing to do with the file system. It's file system agnostic. Uh, and that what he was doing in his experiment here, again, he's doing this not on like a fancy new iMac or not on one, new, one of the new Mac minis, just on a random Mac that happens to be running 10.8.2, I'm assuming. Right. Uh, that this is what core storage is. Uh, and every, everyone else who passed these stories around assumed as well. Hey, core storage on your Mac, you can do core storage. Not core storage. F- Fusion drive on your Mac, you can do Fusion drive on any Mac. You'll be fine. You can put external drives into it. You can do anything you want. Uh, the underlying assumption that this is how Fusion drive works. Well, uh, in late breaking news, which Marco could not possibly have had, what do you think of that? Uh, Lee Hutchinson of ours, who's uh, written a couple of articles in Fusion Drive and who has one of the new Mac Minis with Fu- with the Fusion Drive option, moments before the show began, pulled out his Mac Mini with Fusion Drive and ran a couple of uh, commands for me and got the output of it. So when he just runs disk util list, what it shows is dev disk zero, disk one, and disk two. Uh, disk zero has a whole bunch of different sections. It's got the GUID partition map, EFI, and then it's got Apple core storage and Apple boot OS 10. Uh, disk one is a one terabyte volume. It's got uh, the GUID partition thing, EFI, core storage, and the recovery hard drive. And dev disk two is the Macintosh HD, and it is a 1.1 terabyte disk. And that 1.1 terabyte disk uh you can surmise by knowing the amount of physical storage that's installed in here, there's only a one terabyte spinning disk and a 128 gig SSD. So how could there ever be a volume that's 1.1 terabytes? Well, that's your fusion drive. Dev disk two is the fusion drive made mm-hmm. up of those other things. So you see, you know, it's still got the recovery uh, hard disk partition. I'm assuming that's carved out of the spinning disk. Uh, and it's got the little, you know, boot OS 10 partition thing uh, for going in recovery mode. Uh, when he does info on disk zero, which was the uh, the one that just has the Apple boot thing. It says no file system you know, on it at all. It's, it's an Apple, the device is the Apple SSD. Uh, it's got no volume name and no file system on it at all. Uh, when he does it on disk one, which was the one terabyte spinning disk thing, it's, you know, this is Apple HD, blah, 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 no file system uh, on it at all, not mounted. Uh, when he runs it on disk two, dev disk two says, oh, this is Macintosh HD. It's a journal HFS plus volume. Uh, and it's, you know, at 1.1 terabytes in size. This is the logical volume that's been created out of those two physical things. So to answer the question we had last week of what would happen if you pulled out the SSD or pulled out the other thing and if you just put one of the things in, uh, the output of DiscUtil here on this actual Fusion Drive Mac says those things would show up as having no file system whatsoever. Like it would say this disk is uninitialized. Do you want me? To, I'm assuming it would say that because it doesn't even have a file system on it as far as the, the computer is concerned. Uh, it just looks like, you know, random garbage. Uh, only uh, dev disk two, which is the logical volume, shows up as an actual volume with a size that couldn't possibly exist on any single disk. But that's you know that's what we thought. So when he does disk util cs list and lists uh, the output of the core storage output, it shows one logical volume group with two physical volumes. It's got the you know the the SSD and the physical disk, one logical volume family, and out of that is made one logical volume called Macintosh HD. That's you know that ends up being disk two, uh, and this exactly matches. Uh, the output of the stuff that uh, Patrick Stein was doing. He, his, his output of his logical volume groups and the physical volume stuff like that, it looks like this. So this is pretty conclusive evidence that what Patrick was doing is what Fusion Drive is. And that, you know, unless, I mean, the only thing we don't know is how did Apple create this core storage volume? Is there some new special flag that they added to say, oh, make this a Fusion Drive thing? It seems like there probably isn't because 
Uh, Patrick didn't use any special flag that says, you know, join these two disks into a single logic volume. Oh, and by the way, do that thing where you watch how much I use them and shuffle data around. Like, it seems like that happens no matter what. Uh, so this is some, uh, finally, some actual concrete uh, technical information about how this stuff works. I would discourage people from immediately falling, firing up the terminal and running man disk util and figuring out how to do this themselves unless you're doing it on like a scratch Mac with disks you don't care about because it is very easy to accidentally hose yourself when using tools like this. Uh, none of this is being done by the GUI. This is all command line stuff. You have to know, you know, device numbers and it's very easy to get confused about what dev disk zero and disk one are and stuff like that and just end up hosing yourself. So I would not recommend that you run out and do this. The one question that I had for Lee that he wasn't able to uh, check it before the show was if you use these command line utils like Patrick did and make yourself your own fusion drive out of a couple of this. Actually, there's two questions. One is, can you make a fusion drive out of like seven disks? And I see no reason why you couldn't because the whole point of core storage is you could just add physical volumes on there. It doesn't just have to be two, right? And the second question is, say you make your own little fusion drive, can you boot from it? Is there anything special you have to do to boot from it? So say I had uh, my Mac Pro here and I took two hard drives, two, let's say two external hard drives, and I joined them into a fusion drive and I installed OS X on it. Can I boot from basically boot from two external hard drives? And same question for internal. What if I use two internal drives and a gang? Can I boot from that? Obviously, the Mac Mini can boot from it, uh, but there may be some weird procedure where, like, well, really, it's booting off like the recovery partition, and the recovery partition is looking at NVRAM or some other setting and seeing, okay, well, I'm really supposed to boot from this other one, and it switches over. Like, what is the bootstrap procedure when all of the attached disks appear to have no file systems on them? Like, it's all it's all happening in software. So that's still an unanswered question. But I think that's the surprise of this week is that. You know, good old core storage, either all along or at least as of 10.8.2, is doing this magical file moving stuff and nobody knew it. And so, you know, before those IMAX were announced, you could have, in theory, made your own fusion drive and got these interesting performance characteristics out of it before Apple even announced this. Maybe the first time that Apple is shipping something as a headlining feature in a keynote that was really on all of our disks, all you know, while, while we're watching it. Creepy. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm not about to go and try to experiment with this myself because I, I do have four internal hard drives and one external on this thing and then a couple of spare mechanisms hanging around as well with, with no place to put them. Uh, but they're all filled with stuff, so I don't really have time to play with this. So I would still recommend uh, for everyone who doesn't have a spare machine and spare drives to mess around with, only use Fusion Drive in its supported configuration on the machines that they say they supported in the ways that are supported. If you're a nerd, you want to you play around, then I would say fire up the terminal and type man space disk util, all one word, and scroll until you see the section about core storage and go to town. And good luck. Good night and good luck. Yes. As KJ Healy says in the chat room, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> right. What? Me worry? Yeah. What could possibly go wrong is you will wipe your entire <laughs> disk. Oops. Yeah. No. Be careful, guys. That will n- never happen. All right, you got another sponsor. I have two more. I will do lynda.com now. They are an online learning company with more than 77,000 video tutorials. They teach you things like how to program. They teach you things like how to design. They teach tons and tons of things that you thought maybe weren't teachable, but they are teachable. Web design, programming, photography, business, audio, video, 3D, animation, you name it. They're adding new courses every week. The training library and library 
keeps pace with today's fast-changing technical and software skills. You name it. They've got a course on it. I love screencasting. I've done screencasting, and I've learned a, a lot from screencasting. They have a membership. This is how it works. You pay 25 bucks per month. You get unlimited 24 by 7 access to all of their video courses. And these things are taught by expert instructors. They're taught by people who know what they're doing. Real-world experts come, and they bust out a course. Go to lynda.com, and it's spelled L-Y-N-D-A, lynda.com slash 5 by 5 You get a free seven-day trial where you get access to tons and tons and tons of stuff. And you support the show, lynda.com slash 5 by 5 It's a great way to learn, and they do really, really great work. Go check them out, Linda. That's it. That's the whole spot. Yeah, I had some other technical detail of Fusion Drive that was in my head, and now it it has departed me. Oh, yeah. I, I guess there's, despite all of this evidence, a lot of it still seems circumstantial to me. Uh, in particular, like this this sort of trying to observe uh, core storage, moving data from one place to the other, and experimentally determining it by looking at the uh, transfer rates and the fact that activity is going on with the mechanisms even when you're not doing any. Like, that's 99.9% sure, but I would still really love a real technical document or something like straight from Apple's mouth, like this is how it works, this is what happens, this is the underlying, you know, implementation details of it. Instead of having us to do all this guesswork stuff, I would, I would still prefer that. So, uh, but it seems to me that all this is on the right track and this is how it's done. And it's much, much less confusing now, much less confusing than their explanation now, now that it's like, you know, so it's core storage, but you keep talking about files and apps. It makes no sense. Now it makes so much more sense. And it, and in, in hindsight, it makes sense that Apple would say that because not, Apple's not going to talk about managing blocks of storage. They're going to just say files and applications because that's what people care about. They don't really care that it could be that only the first megabyte of that application is on the SSD because only the first megabyte of it is the thing that ever gets read or something like that. Yeah. So as I say in the chat room, yes, WWC next year, presumably they'll talk about this, if only to brag, because really it probably has very few practical impl- impl- uh, implications for people writing software for OS X, but they do tend to like to, you know, look at this cool thing that we did, everybody, and they'll talk about it there. And maybe there's like one or two new APIs about how to handle Fusion Drive things, and they'll use that as an excuse to have 17 slides about the implementation of Fusion Drive. <laughs> I will enjoy that at least. At least I hope they do. All right, so my main topic for today oh. is... 41 minutes can you, in. Can you guess? George Lucas and the... No. We already did that. iPad Mini. I would have interrogated you about your iPad Mini if you had one, but you don't. It's still on the vehicle for delivery. You failed me for the last uh, time. <laughs> yeah. Apologize. Uh, but no, today I'm going to talk about uh, the Apple executive reshuffle. Forstall is out. Yes. Ive is in. Should have been the title of their press release. Yeah. So the (laughs) the actual title of their press release was Apple announces changes to increase collaboration across hardware, software, and services. And they do this weird thing where there's an ampersand between software and services. So I'm assuming software ampersand services is a single thing. That is a unit. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that's kind of euphemistic business doublespeak because, it, you know, whenever a company announces something that happened to them that they didn't really plan for or that's like could be interpreted as bad news, they are not direct with the, the headline. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they t- it's not like they're trying to hide it, but they're yeah. spin doctoring it, as you would say. 
Yeah, at least in the title, like they're not going to say we've just fired a really important executive who's done, you know, like that. That's that's the headline that we all get from it. Like you said, forestall out. That could have been the two word title of this thing. And in fact, was the the uh, the URL of Gruber's piece, which we'll reference in a little bit. Forestall out like that is the headline piece. of it. And they bury they bury the headline under we're going to increase collaboration and people are going to take new responsibilities. And by the way, we fired this dude. Right. And that's so they buried that in there. Right. Uh so I think it was like in the first paragraph, but but it was like Apple also announced, like in addition to what we just told you about these people getting new responsibilities, Apple also announced that Scott Falstall will be leaving next year and will serve as advisor to CEO Tim Cook. It's nice that they could do it in November so they can say next year. So it seems like, oh, he'll be leaving, but no, it's, it's a month, right? You know, he'll be leaving next year. I guess he could leave any time next year, but it seems to me people keep saying, oh, well, Scott Falstall will be there for another year now. no. It they're talking like, they're talking january 1 or the stroke of midnight on january 1 you right know. and and that's the interesting like when you reach a certain pay grade when you're working for the man or what is your what is your uh expression corporate, uh, corporate stooge. stooge that's you yeah. you're the you're a corporate stooge i am i totally am uh but when you reach a certain level in american corporations they'll they bend over backwards to preserve the aura that you are an important good person who should not be publicly insulted or whatever right uh so if you're just like a a regular rank and file employee uh they lay you off because a factory is closing or something and you just get laid off and all the stories about you are like these people got laid off if you are a rank and file employee and you get fired because people don't like you or like fired with cause or something like that you got fired uh, you got, yeah, you got fired. Like, there's never any press releases associated with it. If there was, if someone calls and say, what happened to blah, 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 like something, you go try to apply for an next job and someone calls up your old company and say, yeah, we fired him because, you know, uh, he was sexually harassing people or he was always he late. He stole or, out of the register. Or, yeah, he stole out of the register or he, he never showed up on time or like they, they say that they fired you. But if once you pass some certain threshold, nobody will ever say that they fired you. Even they'll have a press release about it and they won't say, we're firing Scott Forstall. They'll just never say it. Like, you know, but everybody knows because if you were leaving on good terms, the press release looks very different. Like we're very sad to see like the Bertrand Soleil when he left, he's done such great things for us and we're sad to see him go and he's leaving. And it's totally clear that he's, he's leaving of his own accord. He's right. not being fired. And there's a, a middle ground where like you're kind of being forced out or encouraged to retire or whatever. But this one reads like, this is what happened. This is what a firing looks like when, <laughs> yeah. you're, when you're when you're a multimillionaire. Right. When you're a multimillionaire, this is how you get fired. They never say you're fired, like because they just don't want to don't want to hurt your feelings. Um, and I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not like I'm saying he they should say he was fired, just like they do for the peons. I think if anything, the reverse should be true. That the peons should get the same kind of respect and kind of like you know you don't have to be so rude about it just because they're an underling and aren't multimillionaires and aren't powerful everyone should get this kind of treatment that's i'm not i don't think it's unfair that that scott forstall's firing is spoken about euphemistically i think they should they should do this to everybody unless of course you did something horrible like set fire to the building or you know whatever then they can be more honest but uh you know from this announcement it appears that scott forstall was fired like he did not willingly go uh, and the changes are Johnny Ive will provide leadership in the direction uh, and direction for human interface across the company. In addition to his role as leader of industrial design, Eddie Q is taking over Siri and Maps in addition to all the other stuff that he does like iTunes and App Store and iBook Store and iCloud. Federighi, who is in, in charge, Craig Federighi, who is in charge of OS X, is now also in charge of iOS, uh, which was forced also a job. 
Uh, and Bob Mansfield, who had previously retired but then came back, is now going to be uh, in charge of. Now he had come back bef- before all of, of this, right? Yes, he left before and he came back before, okay. but now he is being assigned this new responsibility for the technologies group. How, how much before had he come back? Do you recall? Was it a couple months or what? I have that timeline later in the notes. I apologize. So we will get to it. Yes. And now you can't see my notes. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and additionally, I think this is, I think this is in the order. It wasn't in the, in the, in the thing. Additionally. Oh, and by the way, before we get out of this, this spreadsheet, uh, John Browett is out, is leaving Apple. That's what they say. Again, fired, right? He, he's not leaving Apple of his own accord. He didn't retire. He hasn't, you know, Oh, it's been a great run here for the past seven years at Apple, but now I'm ready to try new things. No, he was there for like six months. Now he's out uh, in a search for a new head of retail is underway. He was the guy who uh, replaced Ron Johnson as the guy responsible for the Apple stores. And now they're looking for a new replacement. All right. So that's the summary of, of the news. And now I want to dive into it in, in more detail where we'll get to all those dates and names and stuff like that. Uh, but as we said before, the, the, just of this like on the web you know where they cut through all the bs and say there's a big press release a bunch of things happen in this press release but the the headline the lead of this story is forstall out forstall is gone right and and he's been fired and we all see that that's you know that's clearly what happened and all the stories have been about what happened that this guy who's been with apple for so long and been in charge of such important things how how did he get fired what did he do what was the cause for firing him? maps and you know, and again, Maps. if they're not, if they're not, if they're not even going to say he was fired, they're not going to list in the press release what he did. If John Forrestal goes to get another job somewhere, that that person won't be able to call Apple and say, "Why did you guys fire him?" Was was you know? Can you tell? They're never going to say that. Certainly not going to say it in this press release. But all the stories have been about that, and we've all read the stories. Maps, you brought that up. Uh, Siri, skeuomorphic design. Yeah. Uh, and and but the big one I see a lot the undercurrent of everything is like personality stuff of like he was mean he didn't get along with people he took credit for things that you know that that weren't his like all sorts of interpersonal stuff uh, about how you know like personality issues not so much like in other words the the, i the since that current runs underneath everything it's like well yeah he had problems with all these things and there have been some issues with with products, but you know the real reason is because like there was some sort of personality conflict and and people didn't like him or whatever. Um, and and what I have to say about all all of that and the entire idea is that there's it's you can't talk about Forrestal leaving Apple with any actual knowledge or authority because. Basically, nobody actually knows what happened. I know all these stories in the New York Times and Wall Street Journal have like sources close to or app people involved or app employees and stuff like that. Uh, but I, I think it's like, and then like all these articles will say, oh, we talked to sources close to it. And they said that this person couldn't be in the same room with that person. And they had sort of personality conflicts and blah, blah, blah. And then the rest of the article proceeds as if the, you know, they make these confident assertions. Well, we have a source or two sources and they say this. And therefore, and then the whole rest of the article uses those assertions as premises. Given this information that we've already told you from these sources, which you will now assert is 100% true, now let's discuss what that means, right? And I don't think that's a useful uh, way to reason about this because I don't think you could have any confidence uh, in in the assertions of your sources about why uh, he was fired. As, as Will Shipley was saying on Twitter uh, the other day, uh, 
he he was fired from you know forced out of or whatever because he was he was at that level where you don't say fired but he, he himself said fire from uh, omni group the famous uh, next and then mac uh, os 10 software group that he co-founded uh and he said, I don't know why I was fired from Omni Group. All he knows is his side of the story. Even if you were to ask Scott Forstall, why do you think you were fired? You're still not going to get the whole story there because no single person probably, certainly no single person who's not like Tim Cook or Scott Forstall. Maybe if you got both of them combined, you could figure it out. Uh, but like, as they say, history is written by the winners. And that's definitely true when it comes to corporate press releases and corporate politics. Uh, you know, it, when you see stories leaked, intentionally leaked or not, about, oh, he had personality conflicts or whatever, those are the people who wanted Scott Forrestal to be gone. And they're going to sell their side of the story is not necessarily the objective truth. Of course, they're going to say bad things about him because they wanted him to go. But who's to say they're right in that conflict? We don't have any visibility into the internal, stupid, personal, political situation inside Apple. And you just can't go by the things you hear from people inside Apple, because most likely you are hearing from the people who wanted him to go. He doesn't get a fair shot in that. He he doesn't have any say in the corporate communication about it. He doesn't get to influence who's going to be in all these stories. So I think it's completely unfair to Scott Forstall to assume that all those stories about his personality are are true in, in any way, really, like because it's just it's a complete imbalance and a, a complete communication failure. And again, I would say even if you got forced all in person to be on this show and interview him, his side of it isn't necessarily true. It's somewhere in the middle there, right? So I'm not interested in thinking about or dwelling on why it is that he was forced out of the company. Uh, but I think there are lots of things we can talk about about this change without really caring why it happened necessarily. I mean, we can look at, you know, possible things that could have contributed to it, but basically I'm resigned to never knowing and really don't care that much about what is it that made this, uh, that brought this over the edge. What, what made it go from some sort of internal problem to the solution to this problem is to get rid of Forrestal. Does that, does that make sense? Yes. And I don't, I don't know. Like I, I tried to put myself in the shoes of one of these multi-millionaire executives he's, he, <laughs> who, i mean who, just who jump right honestly. into that you can get into that yeah because i wouldn't want like if you were scott for first of all the press has not been fair to him i feel like i mean maybe you know maybe like in his autobiography com combined with like an apple tell-all history like 10 years from now we'll start to get a picture of it but now you're not gonna so uh, uh it's not useful to uh to think about that uh so let me back way up and take a look at this reshuffling without trying to care so much about uh, personalities and stuff like that. Okay. Let's look at, let's look at the, uh, the Tim Cook era of Apple, such as it is so far. Uh, so when Tim Cook took over as CEO as Apple, and this was before Steve Jobs died because he, he sort of handed over the reins as he left the company, uh, Apple was on a hell of a winning streak at that point. And so... Cook's job, first and foremost, was to keep a good thing going. Right. Like, and that's what everybody said when the, the, the transfer of power happened. It's yeah, like, if it ain't oh, broke, don't fix it. Oh, Cook is, you know, don't mess anything up, man. Because, like, you know, they're going gangbusters. Everything, everything was roses. iPhone, the iPad, like, you know, just everything Steve Jobs had done in his past, you know, his last few projects had been just all, all thumbs up. Everyone was loving it. Uh, great things were happening. Uh, and all the reassuring statements, either about Apple or from Apple, we're like, don't worry, 
Tim's going to do just what Steve was doing. Like, yeah, you know, he's going to be his own man, so on and so forth, but he's not going to screw up that stuff that Steve did because we understand, like, you know, don't be afraid. He's not going to suddenly decide that Apple's going to go into, you know, the uh, the health food business. Uh, and this is despite the fact that Jobs himself insisted that Cook should make his own uh, decisions about Apple. Like, I put a link in the show notes to our technical article where it has, has quotes from him saying, you know, don't, don't ask your Jobs would say, don't ask yourself what I would do. Just do what it is right, you know. That's Steve Jobs' own advice, but everyone else in the world is like, you know, ignore what Steve said. Do what he would do. Just do what he would do because everything he did was awesome and you just got to keep doing that, at least in the short term. So it's like uh, all of us out here on the outside totally wanted Tim Cook to just be uh, to, to be like a, a proxy Steve Jobs. Like make, make us feel like Steve Jobs did, isn't really gone. And then when he died, same thing. Like just Tim, just do what Steve would do. Disregard everything. Do what Steve would do except that part where he told you not to do what he would do. Do everything except that. And, um, and that's what he wanted. Uh, you know, that, that's what we all wanted on the outside. Like, you know, customers, investors, everybody who has wanted that was like, just don't screw this up, man, because it's been so awesome. Right. And so what that means is that Cook didn't come in and on his first day as CEO, like clean house at the executive level. He didn't go, OK, now I'm the new boss in charge. Steve is out and I'm making some changes. I'm going to redecorate. I'm going to change everything here. He did not do that. And that is very common for like when a new CEO comes into a company. Look at like the other tech companies, which are incredibly dysfunctional and terrible but like you know get every every new ceo that's come into hp and further screwed it up or even apple's old executives they come in and say things are going to change around this place like that's how you assert yourself as a ceo you know marissa what is it mayor or meyer i don't know how you pronounce her name i think it's meyer the one going to, to yahoo she's you know <laughs> she's not going to go in there and go i'm just going to continue what the previous guy did because usually when the ceo is changing it's like that old guy screwed things up you got to come fix things so you come in and you just you make some big changes right away. And Cook did not do that, right? Uh, what he did was inherited the exact same team that he had been on, that he had been a member of. All those members of the top-level executive staff were still there, uh, except they took the guy in the middle of that diagram, the guy unquestionably in charge of everybody, and removed him. And team dynamics change when the team members change. And especially if, if the change is we took out the guy who was in the center of this diagram and who was in charge. Now the team dynamics are definitely going to change. But... The team dynamics may change, but he kept the same team because that was part of his thing. It's like he decided, you know, I'm not going to rock the boat. I'm going to come in and I'm not going to just change everything. I'm just going to go with what I have. But he didn't he couldn't possibly continue what they were doing because such a big chart of it uh, had changed. So it seemed that some kind of reshuffling was inevitable and he didn't do it like uh, other than, you know, Ron Johnson leaving to go to J.C. Penney and being replaced. I don't remember that happened before or after he came, but like that's not his doing like uh, Ron Johnson decided to leave. And so we had to replace him and stuff like that. So he did eventually have to make uh, decisions like that. Uh, just like, you know, being forced to to sort of take control. It's like, OK, Tim, you can't just coast on the projects that were in the pipeline. The job is there. Keep the exact same executive team, the exact same projects. And just go at some point. You're going to have to start doing stuff. Uh, and that's how, you know, and we couldn't judge Tim Cook by what he did when he came in and cleaned house because he didn't. Uh, so. One of the first things that he did was, and I think this was him. I got to look at this. Was January 31st, uh, 2012, I believe. I guess that was, yeah, that was after Jobs was gone, right? Because he died in, in October 2011. Right, right. right yeah. Uh, so one of Cook's first major decisions was, I got to find that guy to replace Ron Johnson. And he picked John Browett, who uh, ran Dixon's, which is apparently a UK uh, chain. And I have a link in the show notes to this article on Ars Tactica. It says Dixon's retail CEO John Browd is set to take over Apple's former retail chief. Blah blah blah. 
and that wasn't that higher was not looked upon particularly fondly, like right off the bat, uh, because it was like, this is in the Ars Technica story, it says, he may be a poor choice to succeed Apple's former senior vice president, Ron Johnson, if customer service, clean stores, and great products are still priorities of the companies. And it's because Dixon's, the chain that he had previously, uh, uh, you know, that he'd previously been in charge of, does not have a good reputation, apparently, in the UK. And uh, people who knew Dixon's and knew Browett said, this is like the opposite of what I think of when I think of the Apple Store. And this is the guy you've hired to be in charge of the Apple Store. Now, when these stories were coming out, uh, I didn't lend much credence to them, again, because lots of people, like just look at all the people who are currently on the executive staff in Apple, the people who have done great jobs. They may have been associated with crappy companies, even in charge of crappy companies in the past. But I was like, well, Apple gives you a chance to do things differently. Like the rules are different in Apple. You have more freedom. You actually have a good product. Uh, it's not like a bargain basement, uh, thin margin retail business. Like things can be different. You know, I don't remember where did Ron Johnson come from, Compaq or something like whatever Ron Johnson did before the Apple store probably did not succeed to the level the Apple store is. So if you said Ron Johnson, he's not going to help you. Look what he's done in the past. It's just been all a bunch of crappy retail stores. He's never going to, uh, you know, things are different inside Apple. So I said, all right, I I'm giving this John Browett guy a chance. Let's just because his previous chain of stores was the anti Apple store, uh, Maybe the reason he wants to bail is he's like, I'm tired of this dog-eat-dog -dog world and I want to do something better. Uh, but his start was not auspicious in August. So he's you know hired in January. In August, they had this big blow-up where uh, one of the first policies that he implemented was to lower the staffing levels to try to reduce the overhead of the store because it's like, oh, you've got all these employees and if we can reduce headcount, you can get more uh, a profit out of this. Someone in the chat room was saying Ron Johnson was uh, was hired based on his success at Target. But I would still say Target looks very different than an Apple store. Uh, so he goes, oh, he's going to do retail. Apple's retail store is going to be like Target. Yeah, it's better than Kmart, but just barely. You know. Anyway, very different environment in Apple. Uh, so when Brout came and, you know, it seemed like a bean counter kind of thing to do. Uh, we can make more profit from these stores. If we just reduce our headcount, I think we can still support the customers with this headcount. Uh, and that decision was not popular among employees mm, or among anybody among anybody media like, you me anyone yeah because the employees were like you're cutting my hours or you're laying me off right. worse right and the customers are like every time i go into the apple store it's hard enough for me to to find someone to help me and now you're going to reduce uh that thing i think this was well you know it's like august is not right before the holiday season but it's kind of right before the holiday season uh and these changes supposedly are because he uh, he also implemented a 25% pay raise. And to support the pay raise, you know, pay raise, I'm sure the Apple employees loved. You know, we all, you know, pay, pay those guys better. That's great. But it's like, oh, to pay for that pay raise, I'm going to have to lay off a bunch of you, right? And this was not popular and people were angry about it and Apple reversed it. So this story from August 16th is new Apple retail chief makes, quote, mistake in firing staff, comma, hires them back. Right. And Apple is reversing changes to the formula used to calculate staffing levels in its retail stores. An experiment using the new formula that apparently led to wide ranging layoffs and cuts in assigned hours. Uh, however, Apple's new retail chief, John Brout, said the company, quote, messed up implementing the changes in the first place. Right. So here is your new hire whose first major visible initiative is wildly unpopular and immediately reversed. And then you, then it's like, I imagined him having to go, like someone chastising him. And then now he has to make like a public apology of saying that thing I totally wanted to do, that was a mistake. Uh, and so here's Apple spokesperson, uh, Kristen Huguet saying, making these changes was a mistake and the changes are being reversed. 
our employees are our most important asset and blah, 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 blah. You know, when a spokesperson has got to come out and say that thing that we just hired that he did, we're totally reversing and we're just immediately publicly admitting this is a mistake. Even It's not like, you know, they uh, people dogpiled an apple and forced them to admit it was a mistake. They caught this one pretty quickly. So it's almost like John Browett's off in his corner office doing his stuff and Tim Cook gets wind of this and, and he says, he did what? You know, and the other possibility is that Tim Cook was pressuring John Browett to say, why aren't these stores more profitable? You need to make them more profitable. Uh, and then, you know, he was just acting, doing what he thought Tim Cook wanted him to do. And then it ended up being a PR situation. Again, we don't know what's going on inside the company. But bottom line is, <laughs> questionable hire, who we were all suspicious about. His first major move immediately reversed. Uh, these are, are not good things. Uh, and, and this is like Tim Cook's first major move at, at the, the corporate level in terms of the executives. So not, not looking good for Tim Cook's track record so far. Uh, this is a comment on one of those stories from The Kaj, T-H-E-K-A-G on Ars Technica, a promoted comment. It says, uh, as a former Apple Store specialist, I can't even imagine word coming down that they were going to cut the number of people working. Our biggest complaints were always along the lines of, I waited 20 minutes for someone to help me and decided to leave. Like, that's the complaints that they get from people in the Apple Store. It's not that, you know, you weren't helpful or your stores were ugly and dirty or I couldn't find anything. It's that I couldn't get helped. Uh, so, again, cutting employees doesn't seem like uh, a good idea. Lots of, I've seen lots of stories on both sides of this, both that uh, John Brown did this on his own and it was reversed, and also that this is something that institutional bean counter Tim Cook always wanted to do, and Steve Jobs was the one stopping him from applying his bean counting tendencies to the stores, saying, no, we can't, you know, don't treat it as like a profit center uh, even though they make tons of money, don't try to squeeze every ounce out of it. It's more, it's more important for us to preserve the image of our brand than it is to get every red cent out of these stores. So I don't know what's going on internally, but clearly there was some sort of conflict and it didn't work out. Uh, there were more stories about this even after the reversal. It was like now John Broward has been, has been painted with a bean counter brush. And this another story linked in the show notes from August 28th. Apple Store may be shifting from customer experience to profit machine. Uh, so even though they reversed all the things... Uh, you know, this was an this was an op-ed. Uh, the the idea was that now Broward, see, see, I told you about this guy. All he wants to do <laughs> is like you know, turn it into a crappy store that just makes every uh, amount of money it can, and you're going to be pushing like the extended warranties and the undercoating and the two hundred dollar monster cables, and it's just going to be Best Buy in like a month, right? And everyone who was saying that now had some evidence of like, look, this is just what this guy wants to do, and so now he's out. Now this executive he hired, this one change he'd made to the executive lineup, Tim Cook's guy. Uh, who he brought in, all our worst fears turned out to be true, apparently, as far as we can tell from the outside. And he's out, uh, fired. Uh, and you're going to say, why was he fired? Well, what has he done in his six months there? Uh, one thing that turned out terribly, and he had to immediately reverse. So he's gone. Now, Mansfield. Uh, here's another thing that happened surrounding Tim Cook's time. And uh, When did Tim Cook take over? I forget. Uh, I have Mansfield's dates here, but not Tim Cook's. But anyway, uh, Mansfield retired in June, and then he came back in August. So right away, that's weird. He retires. They give the nice, oh, Bob Mansfield's retiring. He wants to go on to do other things. Obviously not fired. Uh, <laughs> he's retiring, you know, young. But, you know, again, multimillionaires can retire whenever the hell they want. Sure. Uh, and then he's back in August. Uh, and and that's that's weird because... Do we, just for the do we see this with other corporations? Have you done a cross-check? Have you done a comparison with other companies to see if they have this kind of shuffling as much? I mean, usually with another company, like somebody leaves, they're gone. They don't, they don't get to come back. 
Well, if they leave of their own accord, like I bet this happens all the time in companies. It's just that every company isn't watched like uh, like Apple is. I mean, m- maybe at the very highest levels, I think at the very highest levels of companies like, I don't know, like Microsoft or IBM or whatever, companies that are similarly watched or Google. It, it, the traditional thing is like once you get to a certain level in a corporation, you're, n- nothing matters anymore. Like almost nothing matters. It, your performance, your personality, there's pretty much nothing you can do to ever get fired because you're the one who determines hiring and firing. And to get to that level in the corporation, you must have learned how to do internal corporate politics to the point where you have your own coalition of supporters and your own little fiefdom that you've built for yourself. And like that's that's all the corporate malaise that happens. And that's why you don't see stories like this. But in good companies that are more competitive at the top levels, occasionally you do see defections like Marissa Meyer or Mayer or the stuff we see at Apple. Uh but a retirement is usually like, well, you know, I never thought I'd be rich. Now I am. And I've been working really hard for a lot of years and I want to go out. And another example that I get to a little bit later is uh, Avi Tavanian, who came from Next and was in charge of their software and stuff. And he retired. And he just, you know, it's the same thing as look exactly like Mansfield. I worked really hard for a lot of years. I've been rewarded for that work because Apple has been very successful. Now I'm a multimillionaire. Now I want to do something else. And that's totally what Mansfield looked like. But when he comes back in August, what that really means is that it wasn't like Avi where he legitimately wanted to do other things. He had some other reasons for leaving and was able to be lured back. Right, 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 right. And, you know, at the time we're like, oh, that's weird. What what could you, was it just because he felt like he wasn't getting paid enough? Like, was that, that none of this speaks well to Tim Cook, uh, to his management, because if you have someone who is, uh, says they're retiring, but they really just want to be paid more or something, you should address that before they retire. And it, like, and I have to think that that's, that's crazy anyway. Like, it's, it's not like an actor where you're like, oh, you're the star of this, of this movie is getting $20 million, but I'm only getting five. Or like the Seinfeld thing where they all wanted more money and Jerry Seinfeld was getting more than the other stars. And, and all sorts of like ego-driven star-based things. But I feel like all of these guys, executives, were being paid very well, had tons of stock options. It wasn't a money issue. And so then you're left to wonder if it's just some sort of personality conflict. And how, how do you get the guy to come back? What have you done to change things? And it seemed like they did nothing. He leaves in June. He comes back in August. And we're like, well, nothing has changed between June and August that we can imagine. You know, we don't think it's money. They didn't like, you know, he wanted a job that he could never got. And when he brought back, he finally got that job. No, they brought him back and he seemed to have a less powerful position than he had before. He was like advisor or whatever. And he used to be in charge of all hardware. So it was mysterious. Right. But in this same uh, announcement that Forstall is out, now Mansfield suddenly has a new, more powerful position. Not Forstall's old job, but a different, you know, he's in charge of technologies, in charge of this this other big thing. Uh, so regardless of the reasoning behind this, this is what I'm saying. We can try to talk about this without actually knowing is it because Mansfield hated Forstall and he wouldn't come back until he got a promise that Forstall was going out. That seems like Could a theory. Be, yeah. Who knows? But like independent of what the reasoning is. When something like this happens, it is a black mark on Tim Cook's record. Like, if you're keeping things in order, you should be the one deciding who's hired and fired. If someone leaves, uh, you should make sure that they're that they're leaving for reasons that you have no control over, and that they really do just want to retire. Like, oh, you know, this type of thing where a really important guy leaves and you get him to come back, and then another guy goes. Like, it's just not. It's just not good management, not just because of the optics of like how it looks from the outside and everything like that, but just in terms of like turmoil and like, you know, you want the company to be steady and under good leadership and it should be like positive changes and accounting for people who want to leave and retire. This is 
this is, uh, I think, a, a failure of management. You know, not a big one, but a small one. Like it's not. This is not a, a star on, on Tim Cook's record. The fact that all this right. happened, regardless, there's no, there's no reason this could have happened. That, that you know gives you a gold star. Uh, so Cook's record so far. He hired the wrong guy for retail and had to fire him. Uh, and he uh, did not manage his current crop of executives who he apparently loves right. uh, well enough because they, you know, they bailed on him and he had to, to pull him back in. Right. So here, finally, I think with this reshuffle announcement is the beginning of the real Tim Cook era, because finally he has done that thing. Oh, wait, so, so you're saying you're saying that that that's over, that the reshuffle that he has now created the apple that he wants. You're saying he's done now. He's put the people in place. He's made things happen. And, and we should not see any more of this. Not that he's done. This is like this is like the beginning. Like you could imagine in a more traditional scenario where your CEO goes out because he's crappy. The new CEO comes in and like, you know, day one or day 10 or something, a press release comes like this. Here I am. I'm coming in and I'm changing things around here. And the first change is Forstall, you're out. Mansfield, you're in charge of this. Brout, you're gone. Uh, you people have new responsibilities. He is starting the Tim Cook era now. Not that there's not going to be more changes. There will be. But this is the first set of them. This marks the beginning. of, And so it's like the time between when Steve Jobs left and now was him kind of coasting, trying not to screw things up, but really actually screwing things up a little bit. And now he's finally said, all right, the time for me to just be like, continue doing, don't mess things up. That time is over and it's time for me to do stuff because things have, by not doing things, I guess we all know, by sort of letting things slide and just trying to, you know, stay the course, things do screw up. Bad things happen. And so he's finally taking the reins, finally taking control. So what did right. he do to recover from his bad record? Get rid of the bad retail guy. Get that good hardware guy back. Give him more power. And, uh, you know, get rid of Forrestal for whatever reasons and take the guys who are still there and redistribute their responsibilities. Give them more responsibility. Reward them. And, like, and this is the new team going forward. Finally, what we have here is the first iteration of the Tim Cook team. There are many iterations of the Steve Jobs team over the years as well. But this is the first iteration finally of the Tim Cook team. And this is the beginning of the Tim Cook era. Uh, and everything between there, I would say m- it was mostly a mistake that he waited this long, especially given the things that happened in between there. Maps, Siri, uh, all the other things that have, uh, you know, the, the bad retail guy, like, it's you know, he, Tim Cook has a lot of black marks on his record, but to Tim Cook's credit, he has been fast to recover. He reversed that bad retail guy's decision. And he gave him a little bit more chance, but they said, no, he's got to go. Like he didn't dilly dally. He didn't try to keep him around for long. Whatever the problem was with Forstall, this is definitely a definitive solution for it. You know, right or wrong, if Forstall was the right guy to keep and and get rid of the other guys or whatever. But like, this is what he's made. It's a very definitive. It's a cutoff point. Uh, If you want to do the last sponsor, I have a a final section about looking ahead to the future. Oh, that's almost sounds optimistic coming from you. Sure. Shutterstock.com, 20 million stock photos, vectors, illustrations, video clips. John, if you're looking for an image for your website, blog, print ad, trade show, swag, or even the iOS app that I know you're building, you can go to Shutterstock. They add something like 10,000 new images every day. They work with independent photographers, illustrators, designers to make really, really cool stuff right there. And when you go there, you download the image you get it in, in the full size, in the full HD size. Same thing with their video. Same thing with all the stuff that they do. They don't nickel and dime you. I mean, obviously, they're a company. They want to make some money, but they're turning that money over to the folks that do the design work as well. And when you go there, you know that you're supporting that independent community of freelancers and photographers and people out there 
when you're when you're cruising around the site, you make a light box. You put the stuff that you want into the light box. They have an iPad app for this, by the way. And uh, when you pick the things out that you like, you want to buy them, you can get 30% off. Use the code DANSENTME11 because this is the 11th month of the year. You'll get 30% off any of the packages that you put together there. Huge library of vectors and infographic templates, you name it. 24-hour support during the week. Go to Shutterstock.com. Code is DANSENTME11. Save 30%. Thanks very much to them for making this show possible. Now it's time for the optimism. To the future. I think of you as an optimistic guy. Sure. Yes, I am. I do. Probably. Maybe. <laughs> so, uh, going forward, I'm going to go through each of the executives who something happened with and see what they're, what are they brought in the past and what could they have coming forward. So, Forstall is out. Uh, what can we look at? You know, his legacy. What did he do at Apple as far as we were able to determine from the outside? Uh, first thing is, even though it's not a confirmed report, I've seen it in enough sources that uh, I believe it. And I do know that uh, when the iPhone was under development, there were many internal arguments, as there always are at any healthy company, I think, about what the operating system platform should be for Apple's phone thing that they were going to do. And on one side were people arguing that it should be uh, something other than what it was, that either should be Linux-based or it should be based on the Pixos operating system or something like that. I think Linux was the other major contender because, hey, that's, you know, that seems logical. And then there was another entire camp saying our phone operating system should be based on Mac OS X. Uh, and Forstall reportedly was part of the Mac OS X camp, in fact, a big part of the Mac OS X camp. And that argument, if you were to just go back in time and look at that, it would be like, you're going to put Mac OS X on a phone? Do you understand? Like, it barely runs. Like, it's dog slow on, you know, a G4 Power Mac. And you think that's going to go on a phone that, you know, has some little tiny wimpy CPU in there, like <laughs> no RAM? Are you crazy? Like, it seems like, <laughs> all right, it's great. I know that you probably want it to be like, oh, we can use some of the same dev tools and stuff. But like, it's, come on, guys. You can't. Mac OS X barely runs on Macs and you want to put it on a phone. And yet that camp, you know, perhaps not led by, but certainly supported heavily by Forstall, according to all accounts, won that argument inside Apple. And that's not a, that's a hard thing to do. There may be many cases in the history of Apple where the the thing they decided to do seems a little crazy or like really, really difficult or, you know, you've got your work cut out. Not the safe choice. And this was not the safe choice. And Forstall was for it. And that shows, you know daring foresight and it was the correct call like does anyone think of if ios was based on linux apple would be where it is today mm. uh it was very difficult to do very very difficult to do what they did and you know there's a tremendous amount of crazy compromises in ios 1.0 in the first iphone right you know no multitasking uh they couldn't even do like the widgetized apps based on like you know html and javascript and stuff because they were too slow everything native you know uh, core animation created, layer kit created for the phone to make things fast, GPU accelerated. Like it was an amazing technical achievement. It was a bold move, and Forstall was associated with that. So, uh, thumbs up on that, right? He was involved with it. Eventually, led the you know the iOS platform for the years when iOS went from zero to like you know a big gorilla, right? In some respects, things like this are a little tiny bit right place, right time, uh, because. Say you were involved, like even just the Mac OS X guys, like 
the guys who were in charge of the Mac of Mac OS 10 during the same time that Forrestal was involved in iOS, did they do a worse job than Forrestal simply because the Mac didn't have like phenomenal growth like iOS did? Just, you know, the Mac is a PC operating system. Uh, that market is mature and it doesn't just have, it just didn't have the growth potential that iOS did, or it was harder to change because it was an existing established market. Whereas, a, you know, this was a, a smartphone OS that was in a, in a class of its own. So in some respects, this is another thing that happens in corporations. The dude who happens to be in charge of the one project that probably would have been, probably would have succeeded anyway, like it was set up to succeed because it was the right plan at the right time and the right product. And he just had to competently execute it. He, looks like a god because it's like, oh, this he's the guy in charge of iOS, and iOS is now the foundation of this company. It prints money like a, uh, you know, like a, a printing press. It's just unbelievable. We're just drowning in profit, and it's just massively successful. Uh, great for Forrestal. Not that he doesn't deserve credit for this. Again, I just got through saying how he was such a strong proponent of it being based on Mac OS X, which was a, the right decision and a key decision. But it is possible, no matter how awesome you are, to end up being elevated to a level that exceeds, you know, the, the your actual merits. And you end up having maybe more power than you should have simply because, like, oh, he's the guy. He He's the guy who's leading iOS. And iOS, like, you know, he can do no wrong. He's awesome. And Steve Jobs himself has that phenomenon a lot. Uh, but, so, you know, in the eyes of your boss or whatever, they don't need to know the details. All they know is that you're the guy in charge of iOS, and iOS is awesome, and it's making tons of money, right? Uh and it's hard to know during the ascendancy of iOS how many things did Forrestal do that were positive or negative? How many things was he for that were good or against that were bad? And, you know, Steve Jobs himself is a great example because at various times in the ascendancy of the iPod and the Mac and so on and so forth, Steve Jobs has been on the wrong side of many decisions. And he would, you know, I don't want iTunes on Windows as being a great example. That was the wrong decision. And he insisted on it and stomped his feet and was a big baby about it. And he was eventually convinced by the rest of the executive team this was the right thing to do. Uh, that's an example of good leadership, allowing yourself to be convinced and not putting your foot down. But it's also an example of you making the wrong move. So I bet Forstall's stewardship of iOS was similar in that maybe he was against a lot of things that were good ideas. Like, I don't know where he fell down on the App Store uh, approval process and all of the various compromises made there. But maybe he was on the wrong side of a lot of those. But whatever he ended up doing, he was either able to be convinced by people to make the right moves or the things that he did weren't bad enough. So uh to to really hurt it that much so it's hard to assess uh his influence on ios uh but you know especially in the beginning but towards the end because how of how successful ios was and because of how much power he had acquired within the company he was steve jobs's guy jobs you know the two of them by all accounts were, were very close and he was in charge of their most successful product line ever their most successful platform ever and so towards the end of, of Forstall's reign, you have to say that everything that was going on in iOS, you know, in the beginning, you don't know how much influence he had. But towards the end, it's like that would not have happened if Forstall didn't approve of it, especially after Jobs was gone. Because that was when Jobs was around, you're like, no matter what Apple does, whether Jobs was initially for it or against it, you do know that if it was released, he was OK with it being released. Like nothing's getting out of Apple that Steve Jobs thinks is terrible and should never be released because he was the guy. He was the decider. He was the guy in charge of everything. When Steve Jobs was gone, the decider for iOS was definitely Forstall. When Jobs was there, it would be like, okay, Forstall could decide one thing. But if Jobs said no, then it wasn't going to happen. But it seemed like Jobs and Forstall were of the same mind about what was going on there. So towards the end of his reign, you can say, okay, now everything that's happening in iOS, I'm going to lay that at the foot of Forstall because he is tremendously powerful. Jobs is no longer there. Uh, and so that's got to be him, right? And examples of things that happened 
when it was just Forrestal or when it was at the end of his reign and when it's most clear to us on the outside that this had to have been at least approved by Forrestal because he was basically a dictator of that whole section of this huge part of Apple business are Siri, Maps, and maybe the crazy skeuomorphic and textured app bonanza that happened on, on iOS, right? But certainly Siri and Maps. Those land directly at the feet of Forrestal. It's hard for me to imagine that you know, like the buck has to stop with him at that point because he was so clearly in charge. Jobs was gone. I can't imagine Tim Cook taking on the same role that Jobs did to come in and say, oh, I really want to find my friends to be leather. Tim Cook is not doing that by all accounts, right? So that was all on Forstall. And all those things have parts of them that were not, you know, up to Apple standards. Siri was released as beta. That's Apple kind of admitting that it's not really quite ready to go or whatever, but Jobs saw Siri and thumbs up it, but he was like practically on his deathbed. So you can't know if he's like, boy, I bet this will be great or whatever. Or was he thinking to himself, boy, if I was still well and I was in charge, I would say maybe he'll leave Siri, you know, but he wasn't in charge anymore. So I remember, that was some story. I think it was in the Isaacson bio or someplace else, but they were showing Steve Jobs in the hospital, Siri. And I think it was actually Forstall showing it to him, right? But Siri, you know, I had my show where I talked about Siri a little bit. They... Apple, you know, to its credit or detriment, put the full force of Apple's company behind Siri, all the ads with Siri, the celebrities talking to whatever the reality of it was like, not great. And that was kind of acknowledged by the beta thing. Maps, second round. And we talked about this in the past show. Apple had to take over maps. It had to take the reins on that, but it also had to do a good job with it. And so they got most of that, except for the good job part, maybe not so much. Maybe it should have baked longer or whatever. That falls at Forrestal's feet as well. Right. And the skeuomorphic stuff with the, you know, things looking like leather or looking like knobs that you have to turn, stuff like that, uh, or just everything being textured with linen everywhere. Uh, every report we've seen is that Steve Jobs liked that and that Forstall liked it too. And once, you know, like iOS 6, the OS that I would say, you know, is the most, has Forstall's fingerprint on it the most, certainly he had the most power to influence that had a ton of that stuff. Now, Mac OS X did too. I don't know. Forrestal probably didn't have any influence over Mac OS X. I'm not sure. But uh, that's why I say maybe for the skeuomorphic stuff. And there's tons of stories about that. Like, oh, the whole reason we have these ugly skeuomorphic apps is because Forrestal was in charge. Now that he's gone, we won't have them anymore. I don't think that's clear. So that's why I give that one a maybe. Uh, But if you're looking for, from the outside, any possible reason why Forrestal should be out of the company, just based on the visibility of things we can see, we all saw how Siri performed in what it did. We all saw how Maps performed in what it did. So those two things combined with any possible personality conflict. Personality conflicts alone aren't going to do it. I don't think Maps alone would do it. I don't think Siri alone would do Just it. Just a combination plus, of everything. Yeah, Siri plus Maps plus any kind of personality conflict in terms of the, in, whether he's right or wrong, whether everyone else is a jerk and Scott Forstall is not a jerk. Regardless, like those two actual performance-related things combined with any kind of personality conflict, no matter who's right and who's wrong, I think that it adequately explains uh, why Forstall is now out. Uh, And it's kind of sad, but on the other hand, those two things, Siri and Maps, I know we all made fun of the whole, this would have never happened to Steve Jobs was there. You know, Steve Jobs had plenty of stinkers too, but, uh, and Steve Jobs really did like Forstall, and it could be that Steve Jobs would have given him more of a chance or would have taken the reins tighter, but Jobs wasn't above firing people either. Papermaster, who they hired from, or was it IBM or something? He came and went pretty quickly too into the Jobs era. So, uh, yeah, I, I think this this uh, Forstall's legacy is 
mostly positive, but kind of ended on not a great note for Apple or for himself. Uh, because if the last things you did are Syrian maps, maybe that's not such a great track record. Uh, so Cook getting rid of him, regardless of any other reasons, is probably a positive because like, it's like I gave you a chance. iOS platform has not been floundering. It's still doing very well and everything, but these two misses combined with whatever the heck's going on personality-wise is a reason enough that you got to go. Next one up is Johnny Ive, who we all know for many years. He's been an Apple for a long time, industrial designer, maker of all this sorts of hardware. Now he's going to be in the one guy in charge of human interface, uh, where there was never, well, there hadn't been in the Jobs 2 era really anyone who had this position other than uh, implicitly Steve Jobs himself. But now there's an actual guy whose title is human interface across the entire company. And this includes both hardware and software because he's still in charge of industrial design and now he's also in charge of the human interface of all their software, right? Uh, and the question is now, we all know what Johnny Ives' industrial design taste is because we're all staring at and touching it and using it all the time. Like, his, you know, we know what that aesthetic is. What is his software taste? Do we know anything about what he, how he feels about software? Now, supposedly, Johnny Ive had a big influence on the design of the very first version of iOS, which if you look at the very first version of iOS, looks very different than iOS 6 in terms of just, you know, the, the look and feel of the thing. Not the operation so much, but just the look and the feel of, of the widgets and the textures and the, the way the apps are organized and the, the interfaces and stuff like that. Uh, and, and as I said, by all accounts, Forstall and Jobs were totally on the bandwagon of they liked, they liked things that look like they were made of real material. It looks like it's made of wood. looks like it's made of some other material. And they also like skeuomorphism where it's like, well, a real... Uh, mixer control panel has knobs on it. So when we put a, a mixer control panel in GarageBand, we're going to have knobs and you're going to turn them with your little fingers because real ones did. And even though knobs, you know, that that whole thing and or putting big leather flaps on stuff and all sorts of stuff like that. Uh, that the leather with the stitching on it because real calendar full pages need some sort of stitching to hold the pages and the computer one doesn't, but we're going to put it there anyway. The book design for contacts, a real contact book is a book and you open it and the sides have to be the same size. Doesn't need to be that way in the computer, but it was. Uh, all of that uh, supposedly is uh, Forstall and Jobs doing. And as we discussed on the Windows 8 show that I couldn't find anywhere, when I was looking at Windows 8 when it was introduced, and you spend enough time staring at Windows 8 and playing with it, this is before the service, just playing with it on a desktop and stuff like that, or even just Windows Phone 7. If you just spend enough time with those and then you go back to your iOS device, it makes the iOS, and this was iOS 5 back then, I think, it makes the iOS interface look dated. It looks dated in the way that if you were to boot up your current Mac in, into Jaguar 10.2 or something, that the pinstripes would, would blind you. You'd be like, oh my God, how did I even use this thing? Like some of that is fashion, but some of it is also that it's like, it's a treatment of it. It's more heavyweight. It's more to made look like a texture, like a material. And not, not that I'm saying that Windows 8 is like nicer looking or better looking. Because there, Windows 8 UI has problems as well. But just in terms of which one of these, you know, so it's like an analogy. Current Mac OS, you know, pinstripes is the current Mac OS 10 as current iOS, uh, you know, 6 is to, is to what? Uh, it, spending time with, with Windows 8, it makes Windows 8 look like the natural evolution of forward. Get rid of these details, don't pile more on. And both the Mac and iOS have been sort of reversing that where they've been adding more texture, more materials, more, uh, more stuff that is sort of, decorative and maybe superfluous or whatever uh 
that doesn't necessarily mean that one approach is better than the other, just that, that that kind of feel that you have when you look at like, oh, remember how Mac OS X used to be? And you look at that and it feels old. That's the way iOS feels, the current iOS feels to me after using Windows 8. So that that's, a, that's you know, something that's in the air. At least, at least I feel it. Maybe other people feel a different way about it. Now, Johnny Ive is reportedly against that, that all those trends. And here's his interview from May 2012 that I put in the show notes that Gruber linked to. Uh, from a Telegraph in the UK, uh, and is talking about skeuomorphism and all stuff like that, and talking about this is when the, the uh, calendar app had the leather on it and stuff like that. And the interviewer says, "When I mention the fake stitching, I've offers a wince, but it's a gesture of sympathy rather than a suggestion that he dislikes such things. At least that's how I read it." So the the, the author of his article is trying to be charitable and saying that I've winces when he mentions the leather on the calendar. I think that's a pretty clear indication that Johnny Ive was not in <laughs> favor of putting the leather and the stitching on the calendar, yeah. right? But he's trying to say, oh, well, it's not that he doesn't like it. It's just that it's not simple. And so here's the the the, uh, 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 the interview continues that I've refuses to be drawn on the matter, offering a diplomatic reply. And this is a quote from I've. My focus is very much working with other teams on products and ideas and then developing hardware. So that's our focus and that's our responsibility. In terms of those elements that you're talking about, I'm not really connected to that. And when Gruber posted this exact excerpt on his forestall out post, which has the correct URL, forestall underscore out, uh, as Gruber says, he's connected now. <laughs> he's connected now. So, right. oh, well, it used to be like, oh, I'm not really connected with the software. Well, now you're in charge of the software. So presumably, it's hard to imagine that the level of real-world materials, heavyweight user interface, uh, comforting, decorative things that remind us of physical objects, that's got to go down now. It's just got to, because if he's wincing at, like, when we just put leather on the calendar, surely he's not in favor of those damn real-to-real things turning in the podcast app, Right. Like that is just way over the edge. Uh, now, it doesn't mean that, you know, all of a sudden GarageBand is not going to have a little fake piano on it. Of course it's going to. Like there's appropriate points for these things. You want it to have a gorgeous looking fake piano or the little, the fake drums and stuff like that. But maybe not for the podcast app with a reel to reel. Like that is probably over the line. And I have to imagine that the amount of this stuff we see, and it is two categories of stuff. It's not just all skeuomorphic. The skeuomorphism, making little virtual knobs and stuff. And then there's, have, making things look like they're made of real materials and textured looks and stuff like that. And that's more of an aesthetic thing. Both of those seem like they have to go down with Ive. Uh, and most people are happy about that because they feel like it's gone too far in the other direction. And now, possible dangers with Ive taking over here. Judging by his hardware, Ive has a little bit of a tendency to make things a bit simpler and cleaner than they should be. Like, he, you know... He's enamored with beautiful, simple, elegant designs, but at some point you also have to use the thing. He's always trying to balance that to make it usable, but also beautiful and simple. And sometimes it goes the wrong way. Hockey puck mouse. Uh, I'm not sure if he was for or against that, but he was he was an industrial designer at Apple when that happened. Steve Jobs sure loved it. Maybe he told Steve Jobs, this little circle mouse was just a, a little concept drawing, but you can't ship this thing, Steve. We don't know what was going on, but the the but you know, you have to assign the hockey puck mouse to somebody. And he was the industrial designer at that point, And he was behind the iMac and all that other stuff. And they shipped a circular mouse and it was hard to tell which way was up. It looked beautiful, nice and symmetrical and even, and you know, look, it's, it's a beautiful circle, but horrible they, to use, you know, they can't be circle because you can't tell which way is up and you got to feel for the cord with your fingers and they put the little dent on it. And now you're con- that must've pained him so much. It's like the whole point of the circular mouse is to have a beautiful, uniform symmetrical thing and you're going to put a divot in my design because people can't find the front of it Ugh, like that must have killed him uh also the ports on the underside of the cube the ports on the back of the imac and the monitor it's like well you don't want all these things to be visible somewhere we want 
the ports to be in the back so you can route all the cables through our little hole in the stand on the iMac. And, but if you're constantly plugging and unplugging stuff, any PC vendor would have put at least one port facing forward or one port on the side for practical reasons. And I've comes down on the other side. That's not elegant. It's not beautiful. It's ugly to have those things visible. I want them all on the back or on the on the cube. I want them all on the underside, even if it's more difficult to like reach around the back of your computer and feel where the things are and stick them in there. Uh, so he does tend to, on the hardware side anyway, go a little bit too far in the direction of elegance and simplicity without perhaps as much thought towards how you're actually going to use this thing. Like if you think about things that are done the opposite way, like OXO was a good example, especially in the past. Now maybe they're losing the, the plot a little bit. But uh, back in the day, OXO made products for people with arthritis. If you have difficulty you know, opening a can with a can opener or using some other tool, we're going to make tools that are specially designed for people who have you know, hand disabilities with their hands. And those things, things that are made to be, you know, all we care about is can you use this thing with the least amount of effort, with the most mechanical efficiency, with, you know, without it being slippery, without requiring fine motor skills, without requiring a lot of strength. Those things are ugly as sin. Like they're not beautiful looking. As we said in the game controller episode, you know, the negative space created by gripping or, or poking or whatever hand is ugly. It's not it's not attractive. Uh, but if all you care about is ergonomics, you end up with things that are great to use, like the old OXO stuff, but do not look elegant at all, are not nice looking, are awkward, strange, really weird. But that's not what you're focusing on. Uh, I've stuff has not been like that. I've stuff is not like OXO. It's been more like, you know, the monolith in 2010, you know, all of his designs <laughs> are just remove everything. All the right. details are gone. And also, I guess, make it so that, you know, it, you can hold it in your hand or whatever. But if there's a line, if there's a balance between those two ends of the spectrum, he has been way over on the uh, visual uh, simplicity and physical simplicity is more important than ergonomics. Uh, does that have an analog in the software world? Maybe. Um, there's a lot of uh, reading the tea leaves about this. I've seen on Twitter and on app.net in the past few days. One of them is a, uh, People bring up Ives' wardrobe that apparently the clothing designer that he likes doesn't necessarily reflect no, the G simplicity. G-Star. I don't know what that is. Do you know what that is? That is the clothing manufacturer. Now, I don't know that he likes the clothing manufacturer. I know that he wears the G-Star t-shirts. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that he doesn't like the clothing manufacturer. I'm just saying that he's always picture. He always wears the same G-Star t-shirt in a variety of different neutral colors and uh, he is, is famously pointed out that if you go to the Apple, you know, page, the, the executive committee or the, you know, like the, the page that has all the executive people on it, that he is the only one there who is wearing, I, he may be the only one in a t-shirt, but he's the only one whose clothing has a logo on it. And it is the G-Star logo just above the cuff of his sleeve, a short sleeve shirt. And I don't, I... Don't know if the other garments that he wears are also G-Star or if it's just the T-shirt that's G-Star. And, you know, like I've got a shirt on from Banana Republic. That doesn't mean that I like Banana Republic or that I don't like Banana Republic or that all my T-shirts or clothing are from there. It just means I'm wearing a Banana Republic shirt today. And I think that's probably people people seem to think that he likes the manufacturer for some reason. I don't know why this is. Well, regardless of the clothing manufacturer, and I know nothing about clothing or fashion, as previously previously established, G-Star. Uh, his physical outward appearance, especially post head shaving, <laughs> has reflected as <laughs> Minim- matches. Get rid of matches everything extra. 
has matched his devices. Like yeah. Johnny Ive, the physical manifestation that we know from like the little, you know, videos and stuff is like simple, clean, not a lot of ornamentation. You don't even need the hair anymore. Just the, we, we, we started from the beginning and rethought the head and we said, what is the essential <laughs> nature of the head? Do we need hair? No, we don't need it. Like, so that lends itself to the idea that, uh, that his taste in hardware transferred to other realms. Uh, now someone, I think it was Nevin Mergen, uh, put a link into what is supposedly Ives, Johnny Ives car. Apparently he bought, drives a Bentley Brooklands. Now, first of all, he's driving a Bentley because I'm assuming because he was born in the UK, because if you're just picking cars based on the quality of the cars from an automotive perspective, Bentleys are beautifully built, but not really, you know, about handling or performance or modern anything really. Uh, and I put a link to this post in the show note that has a, a shot of the interior and the interior of a Bentley does not look like an iMac. It does not look like Johnny Ives wardrobe. It is, filled with chrome and leather and it looks it looks more like an ios 6 application it looks like find my friends right that that's you know it is that is counter to johnny ives hardware taste and apparently his wardrobe taste but he's chosen this car and apparently he likes this car and i point this out just to uh to highlight the idea that it's not safe to assume that a person's taste in one area extends to all other areas of his life and the example that spring to mind for me is we all know somebody who's like a crazy Stanley Kubrick super fan. And I'm not specifically talking about Gruber, but just anybody. We all know someone who's like into Stanley Kubrick. Uh, but Stanley Kubrick super fans don't all have meticulously arranged houses with spare furniture arrangements and vast expanses of clean white walls. It is entirely normal for you to be a huge fan of Apple devices or Stanley Kubrick or anything else with a very particular aesthetic. And to when you live your life to just have dirty laundry everywhere and your house is a mess, or maybe you're even a hoarder who knows like there. It doesn't just because you have taste in one area doesn't mean it transfers to the other area. So that's why I want to warn against looking at Johnny Ives wardrobe and how he does hardware and stuff like that and saying, therefore, his software is going to look like his hardware, because I know there are plenty of places in my life where I have a particular taste and that does not transfer at all to other parts of my life. Like, you know, I don't cook like I program. I don't program like I keep house like it's just people are very good at compartmentalizing things. And yeah, hardware and software might seem like they're related, but I think. You know, it, I, I I think there uh, Johnny Ive is much more of a wild card in the software realm. The only thing that gives me uh, reassurance is if the story about him having a big influence over the original iOS version of iOS is true, then it gives us you know okay now we know a little bit about his software taste and I and I like it. I think most people would like it. So uh, in the end, I think I've taken over for uh, human interface. I think we'll see less of the textured and the skeuomorphic stuff, and uh, I am cautiously optimistic about it. But I think there is definitely some uncertainty there. Uh, and everyone's talking about how soon will we see something that reflects these tastes? I don't know. I mean, there's certainly things he can do short term that are fast, but like certainly by like 10.9, maybe, maybe 10.9 could show that. Certainly by iOS 7, I feel like iOS 7 comes out. Uh, that should have Johnny Ives' fingerprint on, on the UI, not just the look of it, but how it works and, you know, whether he's moved settings around and changed the UIs of the application and stuff like that. Uh, then we'll know what we should be complaining about with him. Maybe he'll make things too simple and remove a bunch of options because he didn't think they were necessary and people will be angry. Or maybe he'll just look and make everything look much nicer. I don't know. Uh, so cautiously optimistic on him. Eddie Q, uh, he's taking over Syrian maps. So he gets that, like, you know, since Forrestal exploded and the, the pieces get distributed. So the, the piece about user interface, Ive gets that. The, the Syrian maps thing, Eddie Q takes over that. And he's kind of the fixer, it seems like, for anything that has a server-side component. He took over from Mobile Me, I believe, in the past. 
and that was just such a cluster. And like you would think, oh man, you don't want to be that executive. Like this is a big mess, and the jobs is angry. And he comes, all right, you take over and you fix that. And it's like, oh, you know, that's pressure, right? Uh, but he rose to that, I guess you would say, and came up with iCloud, which for what you may say about it, is certainly better than Mobile Me was. Uh, certainly a more compelling product, but still has his own problems. So he's in charge of Siri Maps, iTunes Store, the Bookstore, iCloud, uh, iTunes Match. Uh, his record is okay. He's probably the guy with the best record inside Apple at doing online services. But as we've discussed Many, many times on past shows. This is still not Apple strength. iTunes Match, as an example, I enabled that. I think I talked about this on a past show. I enabled that recently. It didn't work the first several times I tried. It would just grind for a long time and then fail with an obscure error. Then it finally worked, but then some tracks inexplicably failed to upload. And there's no real visibility into whether it's working or not. And we've all heard about iCloud woes. Merlin's talked about it in his shows. And iCloud can do flaky things and you really have no recourse. You don't know why it's not working. You just sit there and hope and pray that it works again. And you don't know if it's a server or the client or both. Game Center recently, we're all playing Letterpress. Are you playing Letterpress? Oh, yeah. Yeah, not playing Letterpress with me. Anyway, no, because sure. I don't know how to get you on there. Yeah, that's the problem. That's the problem with Game Center. Speaking of online services, shouldn't it be easier for like me to find you and to send you a request and stuff like that? It's like not- it'll even look at your address book. And if you used, you know, like a different account than the one that, I have you down for a oh, well. Yeah, like I, I, there's plenty of people who I know their email address, I know the Twitter address, I know them personally, and yet I can't find them on Game Center. I'm adding you right now. All right, I'm, and you should be able to add them by username. Like you can pick a username for Game Center. I can tell you what my username. It's just my name, you know, John Syracuse with a space in the middle. But you can't add based on that. Anyway, uh, Letterpress seemed to, from, from external appearances, crush Game Center. Just like the matchmaking thing. Like when the game came out, it was very popular. This is uh, Lauren Brichter's new uh, word matching game that had a lot of publicity in the Mac world. But come on, how big could it have really been? Like, it's not like words with friends caliber. Yeah, in our little nerd circles, we're all popular. And yeah, I know it's like the number one and number two paid app for the first day or whatever. But that's like a nerd bump, I feel like. You know, my mother doesn't know what Letterpress is, but my mother knows what words with friends is. You know, it's not Angry Birds level. And yet, because it used Game Center as its back end, it, it, you know, and maybe Game Center hadn't been used that much or hadn't been tested, it kind of fell over. And that's, that's embarrassing for Apple. Uh, Google still does all this stuff better. And Apple still does not seem to have a server-side culture. Uh, And we've talked about in past shows what other companies do. But at this point, I think we have to say with iCloud and iTunes Match and Game Center, like all these things that Apple is doing, at this point, Apple really should be doing what all the other big guys do. Before, I was contrasting it and saying, here's what Google does. Here's what Facebook does. And Apple doesn't do that. And how can they ever be as good as that? But now Apple has so many things online and so many essential, important parts that iCloud is essential for iOS, which is its money maker, right? And iTunes match and iTunes store, like, and, and, you know, even things like game center, this is, you know, Apple is as much an online service company at this point as something like Google, practically Uh, Apple at this point should be building its own servers writing some of its own server-side infrastructure software, doing all the things that Facebook, Amazon, and Google do and that Apple, as far as we know, does not do. Apple should not be using Windows Azure, which it reportedly was. It should not be leaning on Oracle and EMC to solve its problems. It really has to get a server-side culture. I mean, just steal Google's entire operation team and pay them gazillions of dollars. You got. If I had to say, what should Apple do with its billions of dollars? I mean, maybe they can't buy these guys off, but... In, in the fantasy world where that money could transfer into getting Google's entire operation seen, that's what Apple would need. If, it could, if Apple could wish one thing into existence, it would be give us a server-side operations team as good as Google's or maybe even Amazon's because yeah. both of those guys, you know, and Facebook is kind of just slapping things together. But like 
even Twitter, even Twitter is, has, even with all the fail whale stuff, has like seemed to get its act together. And Apple still, after all this time, doesn't have its act together. So Eddie Q still has his work cut out for him. Uh, and I think I think it's a cultural thing more than like, oh, this one executive can snap his fingers and make this happen. Uh, it's got to be some kind of change that's going to happen inside Apple to to recognize that you're not the company that makes iPhones and iPads. You're the company that spends half of its resources doing this invisible server side stuff that you don't think is important, that you just want to go away, that you just want to pay a vendor to do, but you can't because this is now a core competency of your company and you got to, you got to get a handle on it. Frustrating. Uh, Craig Federighi will now lead both iOS and OS 10. Uh, Bertrand Serlet, the guy who used to be in charge of just OS 10, he was the OS 10 guy when Forrestal was the iOS guy. Bertrand retired in an actual, you know, not retired from working, but left Apple on good terms of his own accord, uh, went off to do his own interesting things and start his own startups and do stuff like that. Uh, and he endorsed on his way out the door, endorsed Craig, Craig Federighi as his successor. Uh, and so Federighi's coming in. He was super nervous in this first time he was in a keynote with his hand shaking on the mouse trying to demonstrate gestures. But yeah, now so yeah. Coming to his own, like this is all we see of these executives. It's so hard to like. You're going to talk about an executive, and all you're going to talk about is the ten minutes they were on stage. But that's all we see them. Like we we see them when they do keynotes. And Better so, not be shaking when you're up there. Yeah, but he, you know that that's our proxy for judging how he's doing inside the company. In the beginning, you know that's those are big shoes to fill. Uh, uh, and then, but now, like in the most recent one, he's got the little Hair Force One joke, which worked well for him, and he's getting a personality, and people starting to like him, and he seems more confident. And so he's in charge of OS Ten. Uh, OS X's technical stewardship, I think this is a complete list. Maybe I'm missing somebody here, but it started off with Avi Tavanian in the beginning. Uh, and then he retired to be go, go become a venture capitalist. So that's a, you know, an amicable parting of ways. Bertrand Serlet took over there. And then he went off to do his startup thing, amicable parting of ways. And he handed off to Craig Federighi, who's the current guy. All of those people are ex-Next guys, which maybe is not that surprising given the sort of inverse takeover of Next of Apple. Uh, you know, of, of Apple by next. Uh, but it basically means that there's never been a from the beginning, quote unquote, Mac guy in charge of Mac OS 10. It's always been next guys. And there's a little bit of a checkered history there, especially back in the day where the people who just became Mac users recently probably don't remember this, but there was a big tension between the Apple guys and the next guys about what you should do with the next generation operating system. Uh one infamous incident from 2003 involving Avi Tavanian was the uh, the uh, TechNote 2034 uh, kerfuffle. This, I put a link to Gruber's uh, post about it at the time called The Good, The Bad, and The Avi. Uh, TechNote 2034, uh, Gruber describes it as being so inflammatory and in places so ludicrous that Apple withdrew it after howls of derision from professional Mac developers. Uh interesting to go back and look at these things now so i he had a, gruber thoughtfully has a link to the pdf of this which i put in the show notes you can actually read this because apple did remove this tech note from its site and tech notes are like technical documents for developers like why would you ever have to remove one so this one was written by supposedly substantially written by avi Tavanian himself the next guy in charge of what was supposed to be the next mac operating system which had all the mac users all in a huff and here are some of the crazy ludicrous things that it said avoid using resource forks and, you know, Mac OS intended to be an excellent web citizen. Don't use resource forks. They're not supported by web dev, NFS, SMB, blah, blah, blah. You know, HFS Plus still supports them, but don't do that anymore. 
use file extensions. Instead of saying file name extensions, he just says file extensions. If your application creates documents, those documents should be saved with a file name extension because they're much more durable and blah, blah, blah. Uh, don't use type creator code codes or at least don't rely on them. Uh, investigate using path-based file system APIs. Not even very forceful. You should really investigate those path-based file system APIs. Says, path provides native access to files and, uh, on Mac OS X. All other mechanisms like FS refs and FS specs, which are various structures from the old Mac world that let you track a file independent of its path on disk or either a unique identifier or some combination of this stuff it says all those things are built on top of paths and therefore incur some performance cost this cost can be considerable when converting back and forth between paths so he's saying don't you use just path string you know string paths slash whatever slash whatever don't use these higher level constructs that are more durable because there's a performance cost of doing these things he says coco is the quickest way to develop uh mac os 10 applications so you should totally use coco uh, that's a slide at Carbon, which was the transitional API, uh, but at that time was basically the Mac API in the form that ran on Mac OS X. Be judicious about using C++ for new development. He slammed C++ in a very cautious way, saying, although C++, C++ provides several attractive features, especially for application developers, experience has shown that it also presents a couple of risks to be guarded against and goes through fragile base class stuff and all the, all the areas where Objective-C is better than C++, saying maybe think real hard about doing that. Uh, and this tech note that I read that probably sounds either nonsensical or certainly not crazy or ludicrous was pulled because of the backlash from the then big community of existing Mac developers who were suspicious of this whole crazy next world. And they're like, you're telling me all the crap that I do to make Mac apps is terrible and you want me to use your next stuff. And let me tell you why your next stuff is terrible. And so that was like a PR problem and they pulled that tech note. So I think to this day, it goes like 2033 and 2035, 2034 is gone. Uh, but many of the things that Avi recommended actually came to pass. File name extensions are used everywhere in Mac OS X now. Resource fork is deprecated. Carbon stopped at 32-bit, did not continue into 64-bit. It's basically gone. Not gone, but, you know, on its way out. So Coco was the way to do, you know, he was right. You should use Coco to do that stuff. Not all of the things that came to pass are necessarily good things. In particular, I think the file name extension thing was a big mistake, and they could have done a better compromise there, not by using resource forks, not by using HFS type creator codes, but simply by making a new canonical representation of file type information and merely having the file extension, file name extension be a reflection of that. Anyway, I've discussed this at length with uh, various people at many times that, that that ship has sailed. Um, paths instead of FS refs and FS specs, that was just plain bad advice. Uh, and luckily that one didn't come to pass because Paths are not as durable, and those you know those things have a performance overhead. Yes, they do have a performance overhead, but in the grand scheme of things, it's much better to have a higher-level construct that keeps track of where your files are, regardless of their path. And Coco does have that now, and Carbon had it earlier, and so on and so forth. So uh, that was bad advice. But in general, the things he was recommending were like, he was ahead of everyone else and saying, look, this is the way things are going to happen. This is what it's going to look like in the future. You should start doing this now. And Mac, Mac developers didn't want to hear it. And I think, on the most part, it was good advice and he was right, but there are a few things in there under his stewardship that were wrong and had long-lasting effects on the operating system, like waiting so long to get a good construct in Coco that keeps track of files as well as the old Carbon APIs did was bad and made Coco applications look worse than they should have been in the early days of Coco. Uh, and it was just needlessly antagonistic because he was just wrong on that. Like, it's, you have to have an API that keeps track of stuff. Don't investigate file-based paths, you know. And C++, eh, that's come and gone, but... Apple is of two minds about C++. Uh, but I would say he was mostly right on that one. Uh, Bertrand Serlet's reign was much less controversial. 
for better or worse, the decisions that Avi made that stuck continued when Sirlay was there. Uh, you know, there wasn't any big reversal on anything like that. The the big thing that I'm going to land at the feet of uh, Bertrand is the file system crisis, which was that HFS plus is old and crappy and they need something new. And that was acknowledged and they were going to go with ZFS, but then it didn't work. That was, you know, he couldn't, he just, he didn't get that done in his, in his reign. It's something that still needs to be done. He made a good effort at it and it just didn't work out with the ZFS thing, which is a shame. Uh, maybe that was more core OS and not so much. I, I think that falls under Soleil's thing, but yeah, I think, that is the, if you had to say what, in general, Mac OS 10 did great under Soleil. You know, that was its sort of salad days. Speaking of past show titles, uh, everything about it got better. Everything about it improved. And it was all, all roses except for the file system thing, which it just didn't get solved. And it's still not solved. Uh, core storage helps, but it's not a new file system. Um, is a little thing I put in the show notes from, Om Malik or Om Malik? I like to say Om, but I think that's wrong. I think it's I think Om. It's, uh, the, yeah, I think it's Om. I like Om. I don't know. That. Meditative. No, Meditative. Yes. Om. Uh, and this is one of those, you know, finding sources from inside Apple about Forrestal and so on and so forth. But this section is about Federighi. It says, many feel that Craig Federighi, who is taking over Forrestal's job in addition to overseeing the macOS software business, is someone who needs to prove himself. He is not as decisive as Forrestal. Not as decisive and divisive as Forrestal. So, you know, by many accounts, Forrestal, like Jobs, I can imagine, had many adherents within the company who are very devoted to him. And now they've had their leader taken from them violently, like he didn't leave on his own. They fired him. Those people are cranky. And Craig Federighi, the guy who used to just be in charge of Mac OS X, is now in charge of both Mac OS X and iOS. And he's going to, or here's your new daddy, iOS developers. And it's this Federighi guy who you might not even know. And I can imagine him having a little bit of uphill battle to get buy-in from all those guys, especially the guys who are Forrestal, Forrestal loyalists. Uh, but overall I'm very optimistic about him particularly because Bertrand gives him the thumbs up uh, he seems he seems like a great mix of, of Avi and Bertrand where Avi was very sort of uh, opinionated and very rooted in the way Next did things was the right way to do things so maybe he was you know he he saw farther than Mac developers but he didn't see far enough he didn't he didn't uh, he didn't recognize the way computing was going in the future and, you know, made, made some bad decisions early on that didn't really hurt the operating system that much, but they are kind of ashamed because he was the first guy in, right? Soleil was much more pragmatic and really just uh, presided over the greatest development of Mac OS X, brought it from this little operating system that was slow and ugly or whatever into this awesome thing that we all love. Uh, and Federighi took over that ship, and it seems like he was... Uh, it's hard to tell how much influence the Forstall aesthetic had on him, because Federighi has been in charge during the time when Mac OS X has been suddenly sprouting leather and crap. Uh, how much of that is him and how much of that is just him not resisting those things or whatever. But now he's in charge of both OSs and certainly him combined with Ive uh, will we'll be able to now say whatever comes out in 10.9 and 10.10 and iOS 7. Now we'll have, a, have an angle on both of their tastes, technically speaking. Federighi still has the file system thing to deal with. Uh, core storage, fusion drive, all good things. HFS Plus, still not a good thing. Still still a problem. That is his, probably his major technical challenge. Uh, that and continuing to morph uh, OS X to have all the great qualities that iOS has in terms of performance and everything. Uh, so I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about Federighi, but he, he, uh, he, I think he does have to prove himself. And finally, yes, this is going to be another long episode. I knew it would be. Bob Mansfield. He's back. 
he's leading the new technologies group, which is the the most vague name you could possibly have in a company like Apple. What right. the hell is technology? What is isn't what isn't technology in Apple? It's technologies. It's plural. Yeah. Uh, but then then the description. This is from the press release. Bob Mansfield will lead a new group, Technologies, which combines all of Apple's wireless teams across the company in one organization, fostering innovation in this area at an even higher level. How the heck does Technologies map in any way to wireless? But there you go. That's the description. All of Apple's wireless teams. That's the people who do Wi-Fi, people who do cellular data, everything that is being unified. And this is part of the Tim Cook reorganization is doing it different than Jobs did, where Jobs didn't want to have one guy in charge of user interface and one guy in charge of software and one guy in charge of hardware. He wanted to do, you're the iOS guy, you're the Mac guy, you're the iPod guy. And like, so we had different teams, you know, because the iPod team wanted to do the phone. Uh, but then, you know, so did, uh, I forget who the other team was. It, it was in the rain, but like it was broken up by like, you just do iPods and you do the iPod software and you do the Mac hardware and you do the Mac software. Now, hardware did get kind of unified under John Rubenstein and Mansfield himself, and they started to consolidate that. But it was never like it is now where it's like both their operating systems, one guy in charge of that and one guy in charge of all wireless. I imagine it would be like the wireless for the iPhone's got a team and the wireless for the Macs have a team and so on and so forth. So they're unifying this, right? And why that's called technologies, who knows? The next part says, this organization will also include the semiconductor teams who have ambitious plans for the future. Now it gets more interesting because semiconductor stuff, interesting things have been happening in Apple lately about that. Like they bought PA Semi and Intrinsity, whatever their name is, the people who make the GPU stuff. And the fruits of that came out with basically the A6, which appears to be a custom design, hand laid out processor that seems to give Apple an edge in terms of power consumption and performance. Uh, and they're using it in their products, and that that's like the fruits of their of their labor there, versus just licensing a, an ARM core and then paying someone to integrate it with a bunch of other pieces and make a system on a chip and stuff like that. What could their ambitious plans be? The first thing that sprung to mind for me was not mobile making their own mobile CPUs because they're already kind of doing that. It was he's in charge of all wireless and he's in charge of semiconductor, and they have ambitious plans. Maybe Apple wants to start making its own wireless chips, mm. like instead of using Qualcomm and Broadcom chips. I don't see a competitive advantage to that unless like they feel like they're sad that they couldn't do LTE uh, a year ago because the chips took too much power and like, boy, if we made our own wireless chips, we wouldn't have had to wait one more embarrassing year with just 3G before we could come out with the LTE, uh, you know, iPhone 5. Maybe that's, that could, you know, I mean, what what ambitious stuff are you going to do with silicone? I don't think they're going to start making their own desktop CPUs, but that certainly would be ambitious, wouldn't it? Uh and they're already, like I said, they're already practically making their own mobile CPUs. Are they going to make their own GPU cores to add in there? Uh, I don't know. Like, I this his future and his group is the most mysterious to me. The, the optimistic thing I can say about it is like, does this mean we can finally get 3G on Max or cellular data on Max, please? Now it's all under one roof. Can we do that? Because everyone wants, who doesn't want a MacBook Air with with cellular data? Like everyone would raise their hand. Anyone who wants a MacBook Air. Or at least like that as an option. Uh, so if that can be made to happen, I would be happy. Uh, and I think Apple has shown that when they make their own silicone, it 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 doesn't suck, right? The ASX is good. Thumbs up. Uh, again, I'm not recommending they try to compete with Intel until they have their own, you know, fab that's a generation ahead of everyone else like Intel does. Uh, but apparently this group wants to do more with silicone and, and wireless and something. So that's mysterious, but apparently... Bob Mansfield was good, according to Tim Cook. And they wanted him back. They got him back. They gave him something to do. And, and now we wait. So there you have it. The Tim Cook era begins.
ushered in, if you will. Well, kind of shambled. Shambled it. I came onto the stage and it tripped and it fell, but then it got up and it dusted itself off and said, all right, I'm here. But you're still confident, very optimistic and confident about the future and about the the new Tim Cook, the new Tim Cook and the new Apple. In some respects, I, I, I think that like that between the time he took over and now a lot of that seems like not wasted time, wasted opportunity, because as many people point out, if you look at how Apple, the company has done during that year. It's phenomenal. Like if anything, if you were looking like their financials, it's like getting rid of that Steve Jobs guy was awesome. His companies, he was holding them back. This company is making more money than ever, which totally goes to Tim Cook's strength as like an operations guy and a bean counter and whatever. And he sure did that great. But looking at the products that came out of Apple since Steve Jobs was gone, there's some great things there, no doubt. Uh, but there's enough little trips and falls where we're like, you know, maybe increase your batting average a little bit or, you know, Siri, fine. Maps, fine. Siri followed by maps. And now we're starting to get cranky, right? Uh, the jobs made tons of mistakes, but they tended not to be sequential. Like the iPod, the hi-fi and the I and, and the cube and the puck mouse reasonably spread out, right? Uh, mobile me and that mess kind of went through jobs, this whole thing, but that's Apple's institutional unawareness of server side. But yeah, I, it's kind of it's kind of bittersweet to see this rearrangement. I like the fact that he's taking decisive action. I'm hopeful for the future, but at the same time, had the past year or so been managed differently, this current mess and this memo would not need to exist. So it's it's kind of you know it's kind of sad. It's ripping off the band aid, but I would have just preferred not to be wounded. It's <laughs> a good one. Show title maybe. Maybe. Uh, I think I will cap it here. 203. 203. All right. So if you want, you can uh, go and see all of the show notes links that John has collected by going to 5x5.tv slash hypercritical slash 92. You can follow John on Twitter. Syracusa, S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A. There's no Z there. And he is also Syracusa on alpha.app.net and Tentis. Syracuse.tentis and uh, you can follow me on Twitter I'm Dan Benjamin Dan on Alpha you can follow the 5 by 5 account you should listen to the frequency it's a new daily news show I know John listens and uh, and that's it anything else John? I think you covered it alright thanks everybody for tuning in we'll be back next week see you Friday bye bye